Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and this week I watched a movie that created a lot of controversy in Southeast Asia recently, and that sent me into an existential spiral about humanity, our place in the world, and what separates us from oblivion. But enough about Barbie. I'm looking forward to talking with you guys about Oppenheimer today. Joining me today is Devendra Hardawar. You know what, guys? Oppie was not the chappy prequel I expected it to be. <laughs> <laughs> and Jeff Ganada. I remember when, after years of hard work and study, I finally joined this podcast. <laughs> and I said to myself, now I am become Jeff, destroyer of words. Nice. <laughs> nice. Those are, of course, all vague and oblique references to the fact that today on the Filmcast, we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. And find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at thefilmcastpod. Find us on TikTok at thefilmcast. We're posting new videos every single week across most of those channels. Be sure to follow us. And of course, patreon.com slash filmpodcast is how you can support the show. Uh, and if you were a patron, you got our Mission Impossible review early. You got our Oppenheimer review early. You're going to get our Barbie review uh, this coming Friday, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan. Uh, so a huge thanks to all the patrons that make our work possible. We're trying to give them ad-free episodes, exclusive bonus episodes, and when we can, early access to episodes. Today on the podcast, we got a little bit of film news before we got some what we've been watching for you and then moving on into uh, weekly plugs and our in-depth review, supersized in-depth review of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer featuring Patrick Willems. A lot to look forward to, a lot to be excited about. Before we get into any of that, though, I want to mention that, hey, Barbenheimer Day happened, folks. Barbenheimer Day. And... It's notable. Uh, it was a $300 million plus weekend at the box office this last week. Mm -hmm. um, 300 plus million dollars was spent. Uh, and both Oppenheimer and Barbie did incredibly well. Barbie did, you know, obviously better of the two of them and, and is one of the biggest July openings of all time. Possibly will be the number one film at the box office this year. Uh, but only four, uh, only three other weekends have made over $300 million at the box office. Do you guys care to guess what those three other weekends were by any chance? Anyone of all time or this year oh, of all time have, hmm. have made over $300 million in spending at the domestic box office. Uh, <clears throat> Avengers one of them Endgame? is really easy. Yeah. Well, I was going to say Avengers Endgame. That's a really easy one, right? Force Awakens. Uh, yes, that is another one. And um, the Lord so, of the Rings, maybe? Uh, no. Uh, the, no. The, uh, I'll just say the other one yeah. was Avengers Infinity War. Okay, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the Force Awakens uh, in 2015, Avengers Infinity War weekend. Obviously, other movies are coming out as well. And then Avengers Endgame in 2019. Those are the other three weekends that have seen more than $300 million in spending. It's so interesting. Um, I think the... I would never have guessed this. I don't know if any pundit would have guessed that pitting these two movies against each other on the weekend benefited both of them. It, I think it, so. It, it felt became like an event. a meme. Yeah, it yeah. became a meme, but it was like an event that people were like, hey, but I don't people think yeah, go ahead. any of that was calculated. I, I don't agree. think any of that could have been calculated. It just yeah. is one of yeah. those organic things. And all too often, these companies attempt to manufacture that kind of event. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's proof yet again that these things work better and sometimes only work when they happen on their own, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, at least mm -hmm. partially, right? It started on its own, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. 
well, they the leaned into it. The yeah, thing. Yeah, like, exactly. They, you they, lean in, then it you was, fan it was the nurtured. flame for money. It was, yeah, yeah, it was nurtured, uh, yeah. for sure. Um, but the the real... It's, it's, it's actually joyous for me to see... People going into theater, making an event out of going to the dressing up and going to the theater. And I, I saw a lot of Barbenheimer mm-hmm, posts on my mm-hmm. Insta- Instagram, people seeing both movies on opening day. Guys, was, except the idea of seeing both of these things back to back to me is is a disaster. But I'm glad people <laughs> went and did it, right? Yeah. Both will leave you feeling uh, feelings of existential angst at the end. You know, like it's, it's you're going to process people. Make it a weekend. I saw, I saw them of, in subsequent days. Yeah, I saw them yeah. uh, one day after the other. And I think yeah. that's a much better way to do it than trying to squeeze <laughs> them in in a single day. Uh, but I loved, I just, I just love the idea that people are, are going to, uh, to the movies for, for these big events. You know, uh, I, obviously they're based off of existing in one case IP and another case in a biography, but, um, but they're original movies by auteur filmmakers and it proves that those movies can still do well. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome to see. By the way, one of my favorite uh, posts about this topic that you guys just discussed was made by Alex Christoffi, who says, the only correct way to do Barbenheimer is step one, watch Barbie until the moment she says, do you guys ever think about dying? Mm-hmm. Pause, <laughs> pause, watch all of Oppenheimer. <laughs> then, that's true. then, full of the foreboding that's of nuclear holocaust, watch brilliant. the rest of Barbie. That is mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah, that is that is the way to do Barbenheimer. Uh, I agree. That's the uh, we call that the machete cut of uh, <laughs> Barbenheimer. <laughs> um, yeah. The uh, it occurs to me that you know I I do think both of these movies are actually you know good, but it occurs to me that this has more in common with the Gentle Minions than anything else. Really, it's it's. I, I think there's plenty of people that wouldn't have gone to either of these movies, but for the TikTok memification of all of it. I do sure. think that's there's. I do think that's a part of it for sure. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't yeah. know that. I don't know that that's the primary driving thing, but I think that's definitely. I don't think it's it, primary yeah. either, but I think there's an element to it, and I think mm-hmm. they both benefited from it. It's a nice cherry on top for these things. Yeah. I think if you had had these movies, you know, one comes out in July, one comes out in August. I think both of them still would have done very well, especially Barbie. But uh, I do do think there was something unique about it that elevated the weekend. Yeah. And I I mean, AMC announced that 20,000 people at least booked tickets for both of them on opening day. Uh, so it, it is at least somewhat of, of a phenomenon. Yeah. I do think it's interesting to reflect, and there's going to be obviously a big reckoning later uh, this summer, but interesting to reflect on what did well and what has done poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, things that feel old, <laughs> like The Flash and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, um, and I guess to, to a lesser degree, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning or Transformers Rise of the Beast, um, None of those movies have done particularly well, whereas I would argue both of these movies feel fresh and different, personally. I don't know if you can yeah. say Oppenheimer doesn't feel old. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, the I think the combination of factors, right? Like mm-hmm. the IMAX and the fact that it's Chris Nolan and, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, you, you can yeah. You can for, have it's your, a fresh take on this. Story. It's a fresh take you on it. it you know, I, I'm going to talk about a movie that is literally an old take on it, Jeff, <laughs> during today's podcast. Oh, actually, I didn't put this in the what we've been watching, but I'm going to okay. add that. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I, I do think uh, it's worth considering that, like, mm-hmm. uh, like 
I, I don't know. I, I think there's something to the fact that these movies feel new and fresh and original, and those other movies didn't. And I, you know, ha- we've seen all of those, and I, I do think that that bears out. But Jeff, so it seems like you disagree. You think like Oppenheimer is kind of like well, like I old, think old school, that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that is what made it such a fun pairing with Barbie, and why the meme took off is because you couldn't have things that are farther apart on the spectrum. Uh, visually, you know, tonally, it just felt like, which I don't know if that's, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's accurate in, you know, when you actually come to see these movies. I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <think there's laughs> right, tonally, but in terms of the marketing, right? In terms of the marketing. Yeah, yeah, but in yeah. terms of like, you know, the the essence of it felt like pink and bubbly and goofy and fun compared to, you know, doer <laughs> and dark and uh, existential and mm-hmm. and, you know, bleak. I think that is what unlocked the sort of TikTokification of all of it is the joy of, of it being the, I mean, I just saw a woman, uh, kind of went viral because she made a custom, uh, outfit that was this like black smock, like all black smock that then she like tore open the center and underneath it was a pink, dress that like she, she like walked from one screening and then tore open the thing and it transformed uh effortlessly into this you know <laughs> pink fantastic barbie outfit i think that's the idea is that it's it's whiplash right it's uh, even if in experience i don't know if that's really the case but the idea being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know how far apart these two movies are from each other yeah yeah it's a, i think everyone thought like isn't it funny that they're premiering on the same date and we just like took that joke to its logical like conclusion, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, I do think Oppenheimer, I think it benefited in in a weird way from being mm-hmm. the old self-serious, you know, <laughs> trudge through history. And then Mar- Barbie is like, wee, isn't it wonderful to be alive? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't actually disagree with any of that. I think that's all, that's all valid. But I, I think I would argue that, um, I, I think a lot of people went to see Oppenheimer separate from the Barbenheimer because mm-hmm. I, I think they knew that they would get a, in a like a unique take on this <clears> material. Whereas a movie like Indiana Jones and the dial of destiny, people might feel like they've seen that a bunch of times. Right? You know, I mean, even Barbie, you could apply the same thing to like, this is such a unique take on this yeah, idea and this IP. It doesn't look like anything we've seen in a very Absolutely. long time. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, that that's my feeling on like mm-hmm. why both of these movies are really successful. Um, but whatever the case, what we all agree is that it's nice to see people in the theaters <laughs> And that's why we're so excited that we have such a full fall slate of movies. Right, guys? No um, end in sight, guys. Yeah. No end in sight of there. these movies. Uh, un- unfortunately, I'm being sarcastic, if you can't tell. Um, it's really unfortunate, but the fact that uh, the producers uh, are not uh, ha- have not agreed to, to the actors' and writers' demands means that studios are now pushing back films. So a lot of films that were scheduled for the fall are, are now being delayed. The biggest one that feels like uh, it, it might happen is Dune 2 may be pushing to 2024. Aquaman may also be delayed. Aquaman That movie 2. is never coming out. That Aquaman? It it feels like it's... I don't think people understand how long ago that was supposed yeah. to come out. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it was supposed to come out so long ago. And uh, didn't I they say, shoot it with two different Batmans? That's true. <laughs> it's like you push it long enough, we're gonna get you know, <laughs> we're gonna have a recast Batman again. So they 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 have filmed Batman sequences with Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck. If they push it long enough, they're gonna have to get Robert Pattinson in there. 
Well, I was thinking yeah. even post we're gonna get like the uh <laughs> yeah. the James Gunn Batman. Yeah. <laughs> whoever whoever is in the new uh Batman Beyond, right, is gonna yeah. be uh, or the whatever the uh Andy Mus- uh Muschietti movie is gonna be um the new Batman. But uh yeah, I have to say this is a massive you know, the the, the writers and the actors they're fighting for extremely important um they're 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 fighting an existential fight for what they believe is the future of their professions, and we support them. Uh, I have to say, put it separate than that. This is a massive bummer that these movies are getting pushed back um, because it feels like, hey, with Barbenheimer, oh wow, people are just starting to get back in the habit of going to movies yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. every so concession exciting. stand at my theater was manned, and there were lines. And yes, people were buying stuff. Oh, amazing! I'm like, yes, this is amazing. Wow. Uh, and then, hey, by the way, we're pulling all our big movies from the fall. You know, and it's just like, oh, like it yeah. feels like we just started to come back from COVID, and now another significant blow is going to be dealt to the theatrical film going industry, and uh, that's really sad. But the sad thing is, the yeah. studios did this to themselves. Yes, so, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, in my opinion. But yeah, yep. uh, a lot of movies are eyeing delays. Um, the uh, Challengers, right? The uh, is it the Luca Guadagnino movie? Uh, starring Zendaya it was going to be in theaters on September 15th, but they decided to push the release date to April of 2024 uh, because they want to give it time for people like Zendaya to, to be able to do press about the movie. That's a It's a big, powerful promotional tool to have actors being able to do press. Um, there's a color purple uh, movie that's supposed to come out, I think, this Christmas, but mm-hmm. they are th- considering uh, pro- uh, um, uh, pushing that movie as well. Um, and obviously, movies like uh, Deadpool three have halted production. Wicked has halted production. Um, so a lot of movies going to be delayed, and uh, this fall looking pretty barren, I have to say. So um, yeah, it's sad, but we will try to figure out some interesting stuff to cover for you. But uh, the strike already having some effect on what's going on in theaters as well as what's going to be going on on this podcast. Final piece of film news before we get to what we've been watching. And that is a few months ago, we discussed how AMC had a plan to charge differential pricing depending on where you sit in the theater. And if I recall correctly, we all said that that plan was pretty stupid. Mm-hmm. Am, I rem- am I remembering that yes. correctly? Yeah. Yes. That was a silly plan. Jeff, what was your opinion on that? Were you in support of that? I don't remember. No, that's a stupid plan, Dave. <laughs> like operationally, it would have been yeah. like really silly to just try to try to make mm-hmm. that happen. Try to enforce that. Yeah. So anyway... Uh, that happened in February, and I'm reading from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, AMC, uh, the world's largest cinema chain, announced in a statement Thursday that it's moving away from the initiative called Sightline. By the way, a dystopian name for that initiative, in my, if I, were, if I, you know, <laughs> my opinion. Um, yeah, yeah. Sightline. <laughs> the test didn't deliver the hoped-for results. Some people shied away from the more expensive seats, and the company saw little or no increase in purchases of tickets for front-row seats despite lower prices. <laughs> the trial suggested that unlike concert tickets or sporting events, movie fans aren't willing to pay up for the best view or take less desirable seats for less. End quote. I, I will whichever say that... one replies, no shit. <laughs> yeah, we told you. That's Thank actually... God. Kuda, yeah. Hey, just, just a shout out to all yeah. the testers yeah. for not fucking this one up for everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. 
I mean, that's actually interesting data, I would argue. I mean, you, all the three of us all kind of understand that intuitively, but, you know, it's nice to have, like, actual experimental data that proves that to be true, right? Yeah. I think anybody who goes to a movie theater, like, I don't, I don't know if these, like, executives actually go see movie theaters with normal human beings, because, like, the, the idea that this would ever work, I think, was just ridiculous. And we said so at the time. It is interesting. I think that it makes it feel like... um cinema or going to movies I, I know it's not cheap with babysitters and parking and driving and gas and all that stuff but it still feels relatively egalitarian compared to other forms of entertainment no, absolutely I was and just also at- uh listen i i my local theater uh has a huge immigrant population and you know uh you know what's great is just all the kids come to the movies so there's good and bad to that but so, sometimes there are babies at the movies and it reminds me of like cinema parody soap, right? Where it's yes. just like a big chaotic mess. <laughs> and I know we're so spoiled. And we're like, oh, this baby's ruining the screenings. But at the same time, you can't just bring everybody. Nobody's, nobody's going to send you to jail for bringing the movie, the baby to the movie. So it is pretty egalitarian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, compared to, you know, I was just at, I just went to see Taylor Swift last night at mm-hmm. the Eras tour. And let me tell you guys, the price differential between tickets is massive. Um, yeah. $500 plus price difference between tickets, you know, like also Simu Liu was there. Marvel's Simu Liu was at the, at the concert in, oh, nice. the, in the VIP. It's popping section. up in everything. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. Like for, for a Taylor Swift concert, we're willing to pay, you know, 500, a thousand dollars more than the person sitting, you know, a hundred feet away from us, but we're not willing to pay $3 more for someone sitting in a chair, you know, 10 feet away from us. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting, interesting. You're uh, all seeing the same like massive screen, right? Is the thing, right? Yeah, it's qualitatively not that big of a difference for a lot of people. Yeah, I'd argue that if someone, if we had all been paying general admission tickets to to live events, and then somebody was like, "Hey, we're gonna try this new thing," I think people would say, (laughs) "Go fuck yourself there too." I don't don't think anybody, nobody likes that ticketing. No one likes it. Yes, yes, sure. I'll try something new. Everyone hates the thing I just said. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So anyway, uh, I'm going to say something. I don't think words I never thought I'd ever speak. Good job, AMC. Uh, Good job, AMC, for canceling (laughs) that plan. So good on them. Uh, Our theater going will be better because of it. All right. Well, uh, let's take a quick break and uh, talk about a sponsor. We'll be back with more and what we've been watching right after this. This episode of the Filmcast is sponsored by Miracle Made. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality. If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. Plus, they're self-cleaning. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Oh, I've been saying that forever. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean 
with Miracle. Go to TryMiracle.com slash FilmCast to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo, FilmCast, at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. What? Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So, if you aren't 100% satisfied, you get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash filmcast and use the code filmcast to claim your three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash filmcast to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. All right, folks, let's talk about what we've been watching. Devinder Hardwar, you watched a movie that I also watched. I was really mm-hmm. excited to watch it. I'm curious what you thought of it. Tell us about it. I watched the They Cloned Tyrone on Netflix, mainly because that trailer dropped a couple months ago, and I think it's a very good trailer. It's just the scene of um, this, this movie stars, uh, who's it? Uh, John Boyega. Tiona Paris and Jamie Foxx and uh, that trailer started with uh, Jamie Foxx just singing in an elevator and Tiona Paris like backing him up. It was just fun. Uh, This movie is sort of like um, I feel like it's in the vein of a lot of uh, science fiction films we've gotten lately, but this is sort of like black exploitation meets science fiction. It's about a drug dealer who discovers that he may be being cloned by some sort of government conspiracy. Uh, Jamie Foxx plays a local pimp who is uh, who's like a semi-friend to him. Tiona Paris plays a sex worker who works for that pimp. And they're, they're sort of a trio trying to figure out this mystery. I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's, it's at times a little rough. Um, I think the trailer sells it to be a much more fun romp than it actually did, than it actually is, because I do think it actually it is also trying to say something too. Like it's a movie that starts out pretty grounded. Um, I, I won't say too much of what happens, but there are certain scenes early on that feel like it could be like something from something like the wire or something rather mm-hmm. than a silly, uh, you know, a silly uh, fun type of movie. But I think this movie ends up balancing all those things pretty well. And I think the mystery is really fun. There is a, don't look at the IMDb. There's a guest star who pops up at some point. I, I was, I was so, you know, when I saw this, Divindra, I'm, I'm not going to say who it is, but I was yeah. so excited for you. I was like, oh yeah, Devendra's going to love this movie. We, we gave because... ourselves virtual high fives. Yes, that exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun and it shows um, some promising talent from Joel Taylor. This is this his, is his first directorial debut. His it debut. Is very, very strong. Um, so strong. So I, I, I want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Devin. I just yeah. want to quickly shout out. I talked to Joel Taylor and Tony Rettenmeyer, his co-writer on the Engadget podcast. So you can go take a listen there. These guys broke in. They, uh, Ju- Joel and Tony were brought in for Creed 2. Joel wrote the, co-wrote the script for Creed 2, Stallone, right out of film school. So just, just man, this guy is going places. I also really enjoyed They Clone Tyrone. Um, and would recommend you watch it. It's on Netflix right now. The thing that uh, I was a little bit bummed out by is, uh, so the the three actors you named, John Boyega, Mm -hmm. Teona Paris, and Jamie Foxx, when they are together, Mm -hmm. this movie is so ridiculously fun. They have such amazing chemistry. It is a blast. It's effortless, Um, yeah. And one one of the issues, I think, with the movie, in my opinion, is that, it doesn't keep them together for the whole movie. Like there's mm-hmm, significant mm-hmm. parts of the movie where they're separated. 
and I didn't love those nearly as much. But I agree with you. Um, it's it's really interesting because, because as you said, it is. In terms of aesthetics, it's like a black exploitation movie, but it takes place in present day. It's, um, so it's like a weird retro future. Is right. like what they're going right. for. Yeah, yeah. I don't it's know. Really, yeah. really interesting. So, um, I, overall, though, I really enjoyed the movie and mm-hmm. thought it was great, and think you should definitely check it out if you're into like paranoia sci-fi movie. Uh, I think you'll have a great time with they cloned Tyrone on that. Well, I want to point out um, maybe a little too hard on the digital film brain on this one because they really <laughs> tried to make it look like a seventies like mm-hmm. shot on really yeah. crappy film type of thing. Maybe a little too much, but Fair it's enough. still fun. Fair enough. Yep. They cloned Tyrone. It's available on Netflix. Jeff Kanata, what have you been watching? Well, I was very excited that one of my favorite shows of all time that hasn't been on the television in a while with new episodes is back! Of course, I'm talking about Justified. Uh, City Primeval? Great title. Yeah. Oh boy, I disagree. I think the title is not great. <laughs> I love it. But yeah. uh, that doesn't it's- matter. I'm in, I'm in for Justified. Uh, I've only seen two episodes. Have you guys seen more than I? I know I've seen two. Yeah. I've seen two episodes, yep. Um, I love the show. I love that it's back. I love mm-hmm. that it's t- taking big swings. I love that we've got all kinds of interesting new characters. The bad guy is real bad. Uh, we're talking like, you know. Uh, yeah, real bad. Psycho. We were just <laughs> talking about Mr. Boyd Hallbrook in Indiana Jones. It's like, if you need yeah. a sweaty, dirty, villainous man to pop up in something, just yeah. go find like Boyd socio- Hallbrook. We're at like yeah, sociopath level right yeah. now. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm digging this. I'm curious what you guys think. It's just awesome to see Oliphant back in this role. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. he just wears that hat and he slides into the skin uh, of, uh, of, of um, Wayland uh, Givens, uh, Ray, Raylan Givens. Raylan, come yeah. on, Jeff. I, would, I don't know why I went to. show. Uh, yeah, Raylan Givens. Uh, he, he slides back into that part uh, mm-hmm. just like he's putting on his old pair of boots. You know, it's, it's really lovely. Uh, it's kind of cool seeing him in this and in the circle at the same time because mm-hmm. uh, he's super different in, in each of them. I love him. Uh, I love the show. I full full circle. I think you mean full circle. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm a sick. My brain's not working. I am <laughs> no uh, very underwater today, so I, I apologize. I'm kind of running on zero. But um, uh, I'm curious what you guys think of it. I I really have loved the first two episodes. I'm surprised how few. Uh, of the old gang is back. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to change in subsequent episodes, but really, it's it's uh, Raylan Givens in a different uh, different location than than he's been in, and so we don't have a lot of that supporting cast. Um, I know, I think a couple of them passed away, or at least one did. But um, anyway, I'm curious what you guys think of Justified. I'm in. I love it. I'm I'm back. Devendra. Yeah, you enjoyed the first couple episodes of Justified City Primeval. I, I did. I'm loving it too. It is it is wild too because I told you guys I am doing a Justified catch up. I was like I never finished season three, um, so over the past few months I have done this thing where it's like you know I could just put a TV show on my iPad while I'm like doing dishes and stuff, and I've basically been treating Justified as a sort of like podcast like series where I don't have to watch it all the time but i'm seeing everything and i look up for like the major moments mm, so i i have wow. blasted through the last three seasons <laughs> wow. of uh justified just and as christopher nolan intended just as yeah. intended uh, yep. for sure but listen it's not the ideal way of seeing it but it's a uh, we we all wish we had a way to just like hey pop just let me like absorb yeah what like happened in the show neo you know? from the matrix style yeah, just, just like, like down, just download in. yeah, yeah so yeah. i'm i'm downloading justify i'm like uh in the middle of season five right now so i can 
get where everything is going. But it is fascinating to see, like, you know, Oliphant just come back in and just do the thing. Just be, be, uh, you know, kind of easy. I don't know. What's his vibe? Like, Raylan Givens, he's kind of a, he's kind of like wound up, but also like chill at the same time. Yeah. And he just gets the vibe right. Like, experienced cowboy vibe, right? Um, I think the writing is so sharp. The sort of banter everybody has. Um, I don't know. Uh, this is in the trailers, so I'm not going to spoil too much for people. But uh, th- there is a kid involved and i think the kid is very good and the case played by Alphonse's real life daughter and i think they have like a nice vibe together i was a bit worried because uh since justified ended timothy oliphant has been kind of on a spree of silliness right like he was on the uh the netflix a zombie show which was really fun and he also did a string of interviews with conan o'brien and he's basically like the, it is sort of like a recurring character thing now too like whenever oliphant and conan get together they're just like bros they like hang out together they go on vacation together so they have like a very easygoing hilarious vibe so i felt like the the image of Raylan givens has been kind of ruined over the last few years but no he's back it's great um i liked him too in the deadwood movie too we didn't really talk much about that um but yeah it's good i'm digging it. i cannot wait to see where this goes but of course of course the bad guy is boyd hallbrook it's really, it seems like they just call up this guy to be the slimy, villainous gunman whenever they need one. Uh, I'm a fan as well. I'm enjoying this. I think it's a, some nice summer viewing. You know, it's it's fun, goes down easy, and uh, and you get to see some characters that, uh, or a character, really, mm-hmm, Gibbons, that's mm-hmm. really beloved, come back, and he's still doing a good job at it. So uh, I am excited to watch the rest of the season. That's Justified City Primeval. It's airing right now on FX and also available on Wednesdays on Hulu. There's already a couple of lines that I was like, oh, I want to write yeah, that down. So good. It's I so good. write that down. And that's just, I feel like that's the Elmore Leonard of it all that Justified yes. got so well is these lines that are just iconic, just like the most badass Western line you've ever heard and there's there's an, a number of them already in city primeval it's, in the first uh, two i remember reminded, like just watching justified like characters start to comment on just how cool people talk like there's a there's a point where uh Rayland like goes and throws a bullet on somebody after he knocks oh, him down and line. he says like yeah next one's coming faster the follow-up scene yeah. the fbi agents are like that is the coolest thing i've ever heard yeah yeah that's and they just I, laugh dude, at him. I have amazing. i have relayed that particular line to so many people and (laughs) like you need to watch this show let me tell you why here's a line from it like that is the most badass thing but there's like one of those in every episode it seems Mm -hmm. one like Mm -hmm. amazing killer western i mean i always described justified as what if the fastest gun in the west but today you know like that's kind of what he is he's the fastest gun in the west but it's like in mo- a modern setting where you can't be the like being the fastest gun in the West is kind of a liability sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I like sure, how it certainly makes you a nightmare in court. Exactly. Yeah. And I like yeah. how the beginning of City Primeval, a lot of it is like, Raylan, you're kind of a you're kind of a, yeah, maybe you know, don't a, abuse your prisoners. A, so anachronistic. Much, yeah. You're a man out of time <laughs> and you don't really fit in our time. Uh, I thought that was an interesting take. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Uh, I watched a movie called The Day After Trinity. Uh, this was not really to prepare, but obviously watching Oppenheimer has uh, has piqued my curiosity and interest about this whole time period. Um, watched a bunch of videos, thinking of reading the biography on which this movie is based. 
Um, but I watched The Day After Trinity, which is a uh, 1983 documentary that's available right now on the Criterion channel. Sorry, 1981 documentary. Um, that's narrated by Paul Fries, who, by the way, I don't know if you guys know who Paul Fries is, hmm. but amazing narration voice. In, in fact, if you hear him, you'll probably be like, oh, I know I've heard that narration. This is the guy that kind of originated that style of narration. He's very... Um, authoritative sounding um, and very, very soothing at the same time. But uh, the day after Trinity, uh, it, it's, it is a really fascinating companion piece to Oppenheimer. It's almost like the anti or not anti. It's like the, the inverse of Oppenheimer. Mm, okay. Okay. So it's a documentary in which Oppenheimer basically does not appear at all. Like, it was made after he passed away and they basically interview a lot of people that Oppenheimer knew talking about what he was like, what it was like to, to, you know, prepare for the Trinity test, to, uh, to build Los Alamos, all that stuff. Um, so it's like a documentary version of Oppenheimer, but where Oppenheimer, the person is not in it. This is in stark contrast to Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, <laughs> where literally he is in virtually every single scene of the movie, right? Yeah. Like he's in pretty much every scene. And so uh, 98% of scenes he's in, right? And so uh, it's just fascinating to be, basically get a completely different perspective. You're hearing people like actual people who knew Oppenheimer talk about him, talk about um, what it was like to to work with him. Uh, and there's many things that haunt me from the documentary. I'll just, I'll just share one of them. Right. Um, which is the, the thing that really fascinated me was this idea of like, when you're building a weapon, like the atomic bomb, it's like, you're, you're contributing to this machine, this mm -hmm. machinery of, you know, politics and the social order. And like, once that machine gets going, it becomes almost impossible to stop. Like, once the bomb is created, it's like almost impossible to not use it. Like, or, or yeah, in that case, yeah. it was impossible to not use it because uh, it's like, okay, uh, the, the example they gave was in the, in the documentary, like, um, let's say people then found out later you had the bomb available, right? And you didn't use it. And it's like, you could have prevented all these American boys from, from getting killed in, in the, in the war. It's like, there becomes this kind of inevitable, inexorable march towards a foregone conclusion that I felt is very chilling, right? The idea that like it, it, it becomes beyond your control at some point. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think that's captured really well in the day after Trinity. And we'll obviously talk in our review of Oppenheimer, whether it even addresses these points at all. Um, but I think it is an excellent companion piece to Oppenheimer. Uh, and I, I would recommend it if you're looking for more uh, sort of, a more documentary style approach to this topic. It's the day after Trinity. It's directed by John else. It's streaming right now on the criterion channel. So that's one of the things I've been watching. Devendra, you had a chance to watch uh, a movie that we covered on the after dark, but you were out that week. Yes. Tell us about it. I did. I saw asteroid city, Wes Anderson's asteroid city, which also honestly fits in right alongside the conversations we're happening right that are happening now because like nuclear tests are occurring far off in the distance um also like it's a it's a movie entirely or a, much of it is made up of painted sets and very old yeah, style looking yeah. sets so it's like it has like the barbie vibes too honestly i think this is a better pairing 
with Barbie than mm. Oppenheimer, uh, both aesthetically yeah, and uh, tonally, thematically. Tonally, tonally, yeah, yeah. tonally, thematically too. Like this is a really fascinating movie. I didn't get to hear your episode, guys. Uh, but were you? Did you both like it, or were you confounded? We both I, liked it. Okay. I, I I don't know if I like it. I think Jeff liked it, and I was yeah, yeah. I I wasn't confounded, but I was just like this it wasn't unique. really for me. It's special. Like, it, but it I, is I admired it. I admired yeah. it. You know? Yeah, it's a fascinating movie. I don't think it's for everybody, but since I saw it, like as I was watching, I was like, oh, these things aren't really connecting. It seems like Wes Anderson is just kind of like, um, really just like doing his aesthetic ticks and uh, cover only covering some territory we've seen before. But I feel like I have been thinking about this movie for a while since I saw it and like thematically what it is exploring. And there's a lot of existential angst in here. Um, there's also really fascinating ideas about how it's actually made um, because the movie we're seeing is actually a te- like a movie version of a play that is going on and a play that is being televised. And I feel like it is, it is saying something about the way we consume media and how we relate to stories. And again, that, that brings to mind like how Barbie intersects with our pop culture too, and how we relate to it. So I was thinking about that. Like it is, well, it's uh, yeah. Wes Anderson loves his framing devices, you know, yes, like most does. of, most of his movies are like someone's presenting a lecture and in the mm-hmm. lecture, they're talking about a book and then the we're seeing the book story on, you know, like yeah, whatever it yeah. is. It's so, very much like that. Yeah. I, I think this one is more inscrutable than a lot of his other ones. Like I think the French dispatch is a pretty, straightforward and fun easy movie to like take in this one is is a little confounding at times and i kind of appreciated it for that um but ultimately feels like yeah an exploration of meaning an exploration of the power of art and i really enjoyed it i'll probably be re-watching this one soon so that's asteroid city if you're digging barbie and honestly if you're digging oppenheimer they all kind of like intersect in some way so it's worth a watch too jeff canada hit us up with one other thing you've been watching I checked out the new documentary on Apple TV Plus called Stephen Curry Underrated. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm a big Golden State Warriors fan, a big Steph Curry fan, and I really enjoyed this documentary. The interesting thing about Stephen Curry un- uh, Underrated is that it uh, it really isn't about the NBA at all. <laughs> in fact, it mostly ignores the NBA. Instead, it focuses on uh, Stephen Curry's college years at the Davidson College, which is a small a college that kind of wasn't really, uh, hadn't been in the, hadn't won a game in the NCAA tournament uh, for, you know, like 60 years or something crazy uh, until he arrived on the scene and his second year there, uh, they had this, um, or second or third year there, I guess it was third year there, they had this kind of... Uh, Cinderella season in 2006, I believe it is, 2006, I think, or eight. Anyway, you know, early 2000s. Um, and I thought this documentary was phenomenal. It is, um, it, it made me cry. I was crying throughout the whole thing. He just seems like such a good, decent human being. Uh, and it really focuses on his family. And, um, you know, his mom and dad are just seem like just the most wonderful people and instilled such great values in him. And he was, a, you know, an undersized um, uh, kid uh, for basketball. He's only 6'2", uh, skinny, scrawny. Uh, and uh, the, the movie starts, the documentary starts with Reggie Miller reading the draft report on Stefan, uh, which basically says, like, he's going to be garbage, right? <laughs> he's too small. 
He's undersized. He's going to get knocked around. Nobody's going to, he's just, he can't be successful. And uh, that was the MO for him. That's why he had to go. He wanted to go to a much more prestigious basketball school. And uh, Davidson College was the only place that uh, was willing to take him. And because he was small and everybody kind of thought he wasn't going to be anything. And um, it's a beautiful story of what it takes to be great, the commitment it takes, the belief in yourself. And he is very uh, quick to point out himself that, you know, he says, he's this wonderful line where he says, um, uh, no one accomplishes anything in this life alone. You know, the, it takes a team, it takes other people. And it shows like the other people that believed in him, that, that showed him grace, showed him, um, you know, gave him an opportunity, a place to expand his talent really were the key to him becoming, you know, a multi NBA championship winning MVP winning, uh, player. It's great. It's great. It, it's a, it's amazing to me that you make a Steph Curry documentary and you don't interview Steve Kerr or Draymond Green or Clay Thompson or any, any NBA personality. I mean, they have a, a brief moment with uh, Reggie Miller, whose three point record, uh, Steph Curry breaks at the very beginning of this movie. Uh, this documentary, they show that moment. But ultimately, it's not about the NBA. Uh, it's very, very little about the NBA. It really is his college years and his uh, sort of, uh, you know, becoming, getting the confidence to even get to the NBA. And I highly recommend it. I love, I love movies about sports. I love documentaries about sports when they're great. Th this movie does such a great job in creating that drama, even as somebody that knew his story and kind of knew, you know, what was going to happen. The, the documentarians do a, a wonderful job in framing each of the big moments in his collegiate career. And I love the audio design. The sound design in this documentary is excellent. They juice, there, there's a lot of uh, archival footage. There's a lot of, they must have just um, sent out word, anybody that went to college during these years, like if you have any footage of this, these games, please. Because <laughs> there's a bunch of moments where they're literally using just like random students in the stands that happen to bring a camcorder or something. Wow. Because, yeah. you know, this is pre-iPhone. Uh, you know, this is pre-anybody walking. You know, we all had video, we all have video cameras in our pockets and everything is filmed now. But then, pretty rare to have things filmed. So there are, you know, the, the games that were televised, they use the televised footage, the NCAA tournament footage. But a lot of his stuff like wasn't televised because he's at this small school that wasn't, you know, division one big basketball school. And so, the, you know, in order to get footage, they have, uh, I think, Curry family camcorder footage. And they use, it's, it's kind of funny, actually. They use this sort of 80s VHS aesthetic that I don't even think is probably accurate to the footage that they got. Like, I think some of the, I mean, the, they applied like a filter or something. Yes. Yeah. Because at that time, you know, <laughs> I mean, we were making the totally rad show in 2006, seven, eight, you know, we were, we we're using like seven, you know, seven twenty P digital cameras. Like it, we weren't on, you know, nobody's shooting on VHS, but it, it kind of sets the tone of, you know, they show like little kid VHS footage from his childhood too. And it just, they constantly use this VHS look, um, that I think communicates it very well. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a conceit, but it's, it's pretty cool. And then they juice the audio. So they'll like put in the sound of a swish 
you know, that iconic basketball going through a net sound that we all love that they couldn't possibly couldn't possibly be part of the actual footage here you know <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. you know you're in the stands and you're just a, somebody with a camcorder you're not getting the swish sound but but they juice it to like amp up the drama of the moment like oh is he gonna make it and, and the music is really good to use drums and stuff to kind of create tension and then he'll make a shot and then you hear the swish sound and then the crowd is going crazy it's like it's cool, but it, you know, it's clearly manufactured, but I loved it. And like I said, I was crying because of just how lovely and wholesome and, and, and good it is. And you see what it meant to him. Uh, and there's a lot of interviews with him today or not today, but like, you know, 2020 or whenever they were interviewing him, but in modern, you know, in his yeah. more Present recent day. times, Present yeah. Day. yeah. Um, you know, reflecting on that and it clearly was a big deal to him, you know, like it's still something that he holds with him. And the other really great feature of this documentary is that it goes into how much getting his college degree meant to him uh, and how much it meant to his mother, who, you know, just seems like the best person ever. Uh, and um, he, you know, he left for the NBA before he got his degree. And the, the documentary really focuses on his effort, even as a three-time NBA championship a champion at that time, who's, you know, has, is never going to be in need of a job, <laughs> right? He's still, it's important enough to him that he goes back and he's like studying in the off season, doing a thesis paper in the off season, working to get his college degree, even as one of the highest paid, most successful athletes on, on the planet. He's still, you know, it's, it's important to him. And, and I just loved that. It just meant, it's a beautiful, inspiring uh, documentary that I, I highly recommend. Steph Curry, underrated. I've heard great things about this, Jeff. I'm glad you had a good time, uh, and I'll try to check it out myself. I, I you know, <laughs> guys, when I grew up, um, my family was not rich, and so I watched most of my movies borrowing video cassette tapes from my local library, oh, which yeah. had a very mm -hmm. limited selection, and. 80% of them were sports documentaries, right? Were what? So, like, um, so I, I spent hours, like, literally. 80% of them were what? I didn't, I sports, missed that. Yeah, sports documentaries. Oh, sports documentaries, yeah. So I spent, like, tens of hours watching documentaries about, like, Shaquille O'Neal and, like, Michael Jordan and so on. And so, yeah. um, and so I'm glad sports documentaries, like, continue to persist as an art form. And uh, obviously, we all love The Last Dance, Um so I'm glad this is a this is a worthy entry, Jeff. It sounds like, right? So yeah, it's an interesting. I feel like it is setting up for a sequel. Uh, I, I don't know if they're working on it, but I would love the next chapter of his life. You know, his his early career in the NBA and and his first couple of championships. I mean, at the the last 20 minutes of this documentary kind of like <laughs> summarized that really quickly. They're like, oh, and also you won a bunch of championships. You know, it's like, but um, it'd be great to have the level of detail they show here on his his early NBA career as well. Uh, so I'm hoping maybe this, this will lead to that. All right. Well, that is what we've been watching this week. Let's take a quick break for another sponsor. We'll be right back with more right after this. This episode of the film cast is sponsored by first leaf. Summer is the best. There's something going on. That's fun. Pretty much every weekend you got barbecues, you got your pool parties, you got your family vacations, you got your camping trips and all of those things. What am I doing? Well, I'm making sure I've got great wine at the ready. My wife and I, we love our bottles of wine. In fact, uh, 
My Wi-Fi is called Bottle of Wine. That's why summer is actually the perfect time to join the First Leaf Wine Club. I love First Leaf because they make it super easy to get personalized wine boxes delivered on my schedule. And since you get to choose the day your shipment comes, you can go out and have all your summer fun without stressing about missing a delivery. To get started with First Leaf, all you have to do is answer some quick questions about your likes and dislikes on their website. And their expert team will select a customized assortment of world-class wines based on your preferences. My wife and I went with reds and a little, uh, some rosé. You're gonna love a rosé in there. But they also have terrific whites and sparkling wines. Your personalized wine shipments are delivered right to your door. So you can kick back and enjoy bottles you'll love all summer long, all priced lower than what you'd pay at a wine store. Plus, every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. To make sure you've got great wine when you want it this summer, you gotta try First Leaf. Head over to tryfirstleaf.com slash filmcast to sign up and you'll get your first six hand-curated bottles for just $44.95. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash filmcast. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T to get your first six bottles for under $8 a bottle. Try firstleaf.com slash filmcast. All right, folks, let's get to weekly plugs. We're going to do weekly plugs. Weekly Plugs is a part of Show Each Week where we plug something else we've been making. I want to throw a plug for Decoding TV, another podcast I host uh, at podcast.decodingtv.com. We are covering Justified City Primeval episode by episode. My co-host for that show is Sarah Mars from Laney Gossip. She has watched Justified the entire way through, like the entire series, I think six plus times. Um, oh, wow. So... Uh, a veritable justified expert talking with me about what's going on there. Uh, by the way, I, I don't th- think I mentioned it, but City Primeval is based off of a novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, the novel didn't have Raylan Givens in it. Like it was, mm-hmm. or it, it didn't have him as the primary character. So they basically subbed Raylan Givens in for the main character in that novel. And so we'll see how the results play out. But like you guys, I'm enjoying the show so far. Uh, and you can listen to detailed episode by episode coverage at podcast.decodingtv.com. Devinder Hardware, what's your weekly plug? Sure, I want to send people to the latest episode of the Engadget podcast. We talked to the CEO of this company called The Simulation, and you should go check out my coverage at Engadget because uh, on the show we have been, you know, we've been talking about what AI could mean for the future of actors and you know media. And uh, well, these guys have been de- they have an AI model that can take a recording of a voice, a short prompt, and basically just spit out a full-on South Park episode. Um, I did it. And there's a five-minute five episode featuring me as, like, a, a guy, a tech journalist going around talking about the AI apocalypse. I told them, like, uh, you know, make me like Goldblum in Jurassic Park, right? And they put in two sentences. They had a conversation of a 20-minute phone call with me. And they made a South Park episode that made me laugh a few times. Like, the characters 
react and speak as they normally do. And this didn't require any like hand editing by this company. So it's just pretty wild. Um, go check out, check out that episode on Engadget because they haven't fully partnered with the South Park people. I have a feeling all this footage will just disappear one day. Um, but if you want to see what a TV episode made entirely out of AI could look like, go check that out. It is terrifying. I had a good chat with Edward Saatchi, the CEO of that company. Um, he's a guy who's been doing all sorts of media stuff for a while. And also, like I mentioned, I, I talked with uh, Joel Taylor, and uh, Tony Rettenmeyer, who uh, Joel directed, they cloned Tyrone, and Tony uh, helped co-write it. I talk about the movie with them at the end of this episode, so go check out that chat too. I love how you guys mocked me for saying that people are going to put themselves in things. Uh, with oh, using I AI. mean, this, here we this go. company has made a here thing to do it, and I am mocking this company mm-hmm. because uh, it's <laughs> a part happen. of me is like, be a thing. I don't know how much people are going to want it, but hey, they, mm-hmm. they made a thing. You'll see. I will say, Jeff, that I got the closest to catching your vision um, for what that would be via what this what Devinder's talking about here. Yeah. Because um, the idea, it, it's I, I think it's less like, um, oh, I want to see myself in, right. in the thing. But but what is it? What it, what I think is intriguing is, hey, what if you could just enter it a bunch of prompts mm-hmm. and then get a South Park episode that's custom to what you want. Right, like bespoke that's really entertainment. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that is one hundred percent going to happen. Potentially compelling. So it's uh, we'll so and, and just they're building this thing so that they can run like AI simulations infinitely, like a Truman Show, and their tech can like pull out scenarios and situations and like give you a weekly recap episode or something. So I don't know. I don't know where any of this is going to go, but uh, that guy is interesting. So I'd be following it for a bit. Jeff Kanata, your weekly plug. Getting very close to my big uh, run, Hood to Coast. Uh, this is a uh, a pretty wild event that has uh, been going on for many years uh, in Portland, Oregon. It is a uh, nonstop 200-mile relay race uh, that I'm going to be running for charity this year. Um, I'm running in support of uh, Providence Cancer Institute and specifically their uh, their quest to um, stamp out prostate cancer. And um, I'm raising money uh, for that effort by uh, not sleeping and running in a van, getting out of a van, running in the middle of the night, uh, nonstop for 48 hours. Uh, it's it's going to be a little nutty, but I'm, uh, I'm hoping that your support in, in support of this cause will help me uh, in those uh, midnight hours when I have not had any sleep and I need to run another seven miles of this race. Um, so you can support uh, this cause at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash run, Jeff run. Um, trying to raise some money and uh, people have been so supportive and generous so far. Um, end of August is when the, the race actually happens. So there's still some time. If you consider there's no, there's no amount too small. Uh, throw a couple of dollars onto the pile. It would really be lovely. Uh, bit.ly slash run, Jeff run. Of course, I also want to plug our Patreon at patreon.com slash film podcast. You can sign up for ad-free episodes, exclusive After Darks, and patrons were able to get our reviews of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Oppenheimer, as well as Barbie, earlier than everyone else. So uh, I don't know what else you need other than maybe bonus reviews of movies like Extraction 2 and Asteroid City and so on. Tons of stuff available for you at patreon.com slash film podcast. A huge thanks to everyone who makes this show possible. 
of course, we never want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Uh, if you want to support us for free, very easy to do that. Head on over at Instagram.com slash TheFilmCastPod. You can share about the podcast via our reels. Share about them on your Instagram stories. It helps spread the word. Tens of thousands of people watch our reels and learn about the filmcast that way. Uh, we really appreciate it. You can also leave a review for us wherever you listen to your podcast. That also helps out a lot. Thanks to everyone who makes this podcast possible. All right, folks, let's get to our review of Oppenheimer. We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Welcome to the film cast review of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. According to the plot summary from IMDb, Oppenheimer tells the story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. Joining us today for this review, he is a filmmaker and video essayist. You can reach, you can watch his work, I should say, at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. Patrick Willems, welcome back to the Filmcast. Hello, guys. It's good to be back. It's great Hello. to have you, Patrick. Hello. So much to dive into here today. Uh, before we begin talking about anything about the movie, uh, I want to acknowledge that this movie is based off of real-life events. Uh, so, but at, that being said, we still think that some details about how uh, the movie executes certain things are considered mm -hmm. spoilers. So we're going to try to be light on details during the first part of this review. We'll have a separate spoiler section where we'll talk about the movie in full detail. Um, but there will be a spoiler section, and yes, I realize that is a little bit absurd. But hey, you know, uh, we this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. Yeah, we're all the product of public education. We probably don't know half the stuff that happens in this movie. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I didn't know this guy made a bomb in the first place. No, anyway, so um, in Hoomer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before we even start talking about the movie, I think it's worth talking a little bit about our experience watching the movie because this movie is in almost as many formats as avatar basically, right? Like sure. it's, there's many different ways you can watch this movie. Patrick H. Willem. It relies on a Palm pilot for a lot of uh, <laughs> its success. It you That's know? right. Yep. Um, so Patrick H. Willems, let's start with you. Uh, how did how I see did it? You, and apparently my understanding is you've watched the movie twice at this I've, point. I've right? seen it twice. Wow. Okay. So what, what circumstances, what, movie theater yeah. you know how was your I, I will put this bet out there by the way patrick saw it in the best way possible yeah. among that, all of i agree us, patrick i, wins. I agree yes. that patrick probably had the best experience yes. patrick hit us i had uh <laughs> saw it twice same screen both times no bad experience but the, mm -hmm. but the experiences were different he just wouldn't leave. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, I, 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 hid, I hid under I the seats to be like i'm, I'm gonna catch the next one um so i saw it at the AMC Lincoln Square on the Upper West Side of New York City, you know, God bless it. Yeah. Uh, that giant, giant IMAX screen. That it is a full. It is a full. It is one of the few 
Full mm-hmm. IMAX screens in the country, full size IMAX, like what is it? Uh, one by nine aspect ratio or one by point nine aspect ratio or something like that. Like, yeah, it's it, like you know. it's either the first or second, I think, largest screen in the country, something like wow. that. Anyway, I believe it's, that. One point four three by one. I apologize. There we go. 1. 4, 3 uh, by 1, yeah. It's very big, and it's like if you live in New York, you know that that is like if there's an IMAX movie, if there's an Avatar, if there's a Nolan movie, it's like you get ready to buy those tickets for opening day the second they go on sale because for that screen. Most showings are like mostly sold out through like August 6th right now. And oh, also wow. there's probably like 14 seats in the whole theater that are worth <laughs> sitting in, right? It's true. Half the theater is, is like not you don't want to sit there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But so I went on Tuesday uh to a press screening. I was not invited. I was a plus one of someone who was wow. invited. Wow. Nice. Uh, and they played it on 70 millimeter IMAX. Uh you could see, you know, little bits of like, little particles and bits of hair that were like in the projector and uh, it felt very tactile and it was wonderful. Played flawlessly, incredible experience. I saw it last night, again, same screen. And uh, and I noticed early on in the movie, I'm like, this looks a little bit different. Mm. The, uh, the 70 millimeter non-IMAX black and white stuff doesn't look quite as like crunchy and contrasty. I'm not seeing the particles. And it occurs to me, oh, they're playing it on a DCP. Despite the fact that we bought tickets for what was listed as 70 millimeter, uh, 70 millimeter IMAX, it's not actually playing on film. And Aww. so I'm guessing there was some kind of technical issue, something like that, because, you know, it, this was actual opening day. This was not the first showing of the day. Yeah. I don't know what was. I mean, it still looked and sounded incredible, ran, you know, flawlessly. It just was not on film. Did you know like, the theater? It did expand to fill the whole IMAX. Oh, oh yeah. Absolute full IMAX, just mm-hmm. not playing on the like tactile film. And having seen them both, like you, you can notice the, the, the just the difference in the experience. Fasc- fascinating. I, I so, do wonder, Patrick, did you talk to the theater about this? Like that is a <laughs> no. call the theater manager situation. <laughs> well, well, no, maybe sir. they'll hear this. Uh, yeah. no, it was just a thing like afterwards because I was with a couple people who had also been there on Tuesday mm. and we were all like, that that was different, right? That wasn't interesting. Just me. <laughs> so I saw this movie at uh, downtown Seattle uh, AMC, and it was projected on film. I don't know if it was seventy millimeter. Probably it was, pro- but it was projected mm-hmm. on film. And I will tell you that we had some technical challenges with the movie. First of all, uh, there was like a very v- the movie started ten minutes late, which is a lot for a three-hour movie. There was a very uh, visible flicker in on the screen at all times, which I don't know if it's supposed to look like that. Like, it's very, Film like... Film used to flicker. It used to, I, yeah, I remember like, when like, I went to the theater. Did it used to flicker this much? I don't remember. Yeah. And then at one point in the movie, I would say about an hour to an hour and a half into the movie, the movie completely stopped. Like, it just ground... Just complete black, <laughs> no sound, nothing. Uh, and... People started like like a ton of people fled to go to the bathroom at that point. They're like, <laughs> perfect. Well, if it's, actually, go to the bathroom. If it's yeah, actually on film, there's no way for sound to play without picture. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it ground to a halt, and then uh, it took them like about two minutes. And I could I looked back up and I could see someone like was rapidly trying to like troubleshoot <laughs> something, and then eventually like sort of slowly started back to life. And then the rest of the movie was without incident. Mm-hmm. I will also say that this AMC that I was in. 
was not equipped to handle 450 people at once in a theater for three hours because it was sweltering in there. It was like by the end, where me and my people, the friends who I brought, are like buck, pouring buckets of sweat. Wow! It's like that's the uh, true Los Alamos, <laughs> yeah. New Mexico. You're in the 40X screening. Right. I was in the 40X screening. I was in the 40X yeah. screening. So anyway, no, it actually like the dictator. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, that was his, he, he specified the that's temperature. That's the way it's meant to be seen. <laughs> So, uh, so kind of like, it just made me think like, oh, wow. Yeah. It's been years since projectionists have been working at these theaters at all. Mm -hmm. They probably had to call all the projectionists out of hiding to try to even do this. Um, Devinder Hardwar, you had also a unique experience watching. The red phone rings in a room. <laughs> a man picks it up. Oh, there you gotta stories. come out of retirement. You <laughs> yeah. have a set of particular skills. <laughs> no, you're joking, Jeff, but that is absolutely true. I saw some stories. Um, somebody had tweeted this, but I think uh, in Canada, when theaters needed IMAX uh, projectionists, they had to call LA to ship somebody <laughs> over to work that theater. So <laughs> yeah, we're, that's, yeah. it's a thing. Divinia, I you have those unique... skills, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I was trained as a projectionist in my Jeff, youth. were you trained for the giant-ass 70-millimeter IMAX scan? Hell no, yeah. of course Look not. Look how big those are. Yeah. Can't be that different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, you could tell it was filmed, by the way, because yeah. um, of the cigarette burns. I used to be a yep. projectionist in college as well. And, you know, there's a mark that shows on the top right corner of the screen when you need to change reels. And you could tell that's why it was projected. Mm -hmm. That's how it's projected on film. Um, Devinder Hardwar, uh, you had a unique experience watching Oppenheimer as well, right? I will, I will also bet that I probably had the abjectly worst Oppenheimer <laughs> experience because, uh, Listen, over here, we have one good IMAX, and that's at the Mall of Georgia, and that's booked also for weeks. So maybe I can get like a daytime showing in the next few weeks. But I had to see it last night, uh, both for work, for Engadget, and to review it here. Um, so I booked an RPX ticket at Regal, which I'm totally fine with. It's a big-ass screen. It has you know good sound. The, the seats rumble. The seats like hit you in the back during big explosions. So that's fun. Um, I'm driving to the theater. There's a big rainstorm like while we're having dinner. I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, driving to the theater and there's a point where you realize like things are bad. Like, Oh, this stoplight is now just a flashing red light. That's not good. Um, <laughs> driving forward entire, like an entire strip mall, entire malls, completely dead black, just black. <laughs> I was sitting at like an intersection with no working lights and people were just like graciously like going across. Um, but I sat there in the parking lot of the Regal, no lights, no nothing. I'm like, this is a problem. <laughs> so I immediately uh, took that picture, uh, which I tweeted, um, or no, it's on other services. I booked another ticket. And I just like, you remember that car chase and tenant guys where you're going backwards through the road <laughs> that you just drove down? I was like, okay, I have uh, the movie started five minutes ago, or at least that's the list of time. So zoom, tenant, tenant race <laughs> down the road. I missed the first couple minutes of the movie, but uh, I did make it to a lesser theater. It's called NCG. You've never heard of it. Um, doesn't have good screens. The sound is fine. Um, but I sat front row, so I made my own like makeshift uh, IMAX experience. Oh my it was god! Fun. Oh my god! And like, like really shitty. Wait, really did you shitty sit front seats. row by choice or was oh, yeah. it? That's okay, Avengers this is one of those theaters. You know it's a uh, it's front row because there's like twenty feet between the uh, front right. row and the screens. I'm like, yes, fine. Nobody's in front of me. The seats are awful. Uh, but that's how I saw Oppenheimer, and it was fine. Wow. Jeff Kanata, your experience watching Oppenheimer? I can't compare to any of that. Um, <laughs> I, I went to a press screening. It was the farthest I've had to drive for a press screening. It was a full hour away in a in a lightning storm that we've been having here in Denver. But Man. Um, 
that's you know a small price to pay i it was projected in 70 millimeter um not imax but it was that uh, was projected on film in 70 millimeter um and it looked uh it looked very very nice but yeah no i i it was no <laughs> there were no uh no events to that were worth mentioning as uh, the movie yeah. started and then it you, ended you, you drove an hour, Jeff. That's pretty eventful for a screening. Yeah, for Denver, that's a lot. Yeah. For LA, that would be like, oh, you sure. must have gone to one of the close that's theaters Tuesday. to your house. <laughs> yeah, for you, that's Tuesday. Yeah. yeah, indeed, indeed. All right. Well, anyway, I, I thought it worth it to share that because uh, people probably will be wondering where we're coming from. I will this tell you that this is a big experience. Yeah, like it's I, important how you see it too. Exactly. So, yeah. I will tell you that I separately purchased tickets for a true IMAX screening uh, next Wednesday. Um, many of which are sold out at the Pacific Science Center in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but I said, hey, what is the what is the screening that has the least number of tickets sold? And they said, Wednesday, 1 p.m. And so I said, okay, that's what I'm going to go see uh, Oppenheimer again. All that being said, that's how we saw the movie. Let's talk about the movie itself. Patrick Willems, we'll start with you. Obviously, you've spent a lot of time studying Christopher Nolan and his work. Uh, I would argue this is somewhat different than a lot of the other stuff that he's made. Uh, mm-hmm. I am curious, what did you think overall of Oppenheimer? Yeah, I, I mean, as far as uh, in relation to Nolan's work, I, I had a feeling after Tenet, I was like, this feels like the culmination or like, like kind of like the logical end point of a lot mm-hmm. of stuff he's been into and doing for many years. I'm like, I think whatever comes next, he's going to pivot in some way because yeah. You know, he can't, like, there's only so much more he can do with, like, big spectacle and time stuff. And uh, and so I I wasn't surprised that he decided to do something like this. And, of course, this is a movie about men talking in small rooms. And it's still, like... men. Genius men. Of course. I I love that. But, like, on paper, this movie is a pretty small-scale movie. Uh, and, and it's, and it's still like done in like the, the, the largest feeling way possible. It's like, you've got to see these close-ups of people like, <laughs> you know, delivering depositions in, in a five story tall screen. But, uh, after my first viewing, I was like, I think this is great. And after my second viewing, I'm like, this might be my favorite movie of the year. Wow. wow. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, the, the thing, the, like. Uh, on, on second viewing, the things that I was like not totally sure were working for me basically all clicked together a lot better. And um, it is, I mean, I've, I've been trying to think like, okay, how do I, what can I say about this that like that that's not just repeating things that, that are in like a million reviews and stuff like that. But it is just like, uh, in terms of the actual experience of it, I think it is pretty just, just like, pretty overwhelming from just the scale of it from the pace of it just the the concussive nature of the sound uh and it's just uh you know it's not often you walk away from a big summer blockbuster movie just kind sort of emotionally shattered and like really you know as you watch a a man reflect on did he straight up destroy and irreparably ruin our world (laughs) and uh Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's um yeah, I I think it's 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 pretty great. Uh big thumbs up from me. All right. That's Patrick H. Williams' thoughts on Oppenheimer. Devinger Hardware. Your overall thoughts on this movie. Sure. Uh my overall thoughts are uh I, I think this movie is fascinating. 
I think it also fits very much within the Nolan wheelhouse, uh, although in like a complicated way. But I will say up front, this is not my favorite movie of the year. And honestly, I am I am tempted to go see it in full IMAX because it's rare to get a movie that is fully built for IMAX and everything and takes advantage of it. But also I'm like, I don't know if I want to see this again that soon because I think it is a really fascinating movie. It you know wrestles with some really... Uh, tremendous moral questions and Oppenheimer uh, Oppie as we'll call him um, is Must is we? a is a fascinating figure through history like whenever I've read about him or seen stories about him like the, the idea that you know this genius level guy was able to command this team which requires a certain amount of charisma and like you know we're, we're gonna see some like uh, you know startup bros uh, growth hacking you know how how to run a team like Oppenheimer? Oh, how to how to create yeah. like a nuclear yeah Manhattan Project level <laughs> startup? Um, there's a lot of work that goes on here, and I think this movie shows a lot of that, and also shows like his level of genius and his sort of like worldliness too. Like he is a very progressive guy. He is trying to do all sorts of. He has his fingers in many pies, and he's thinking deeply about the world. There's almost something monk like about him too like and uh, i think this is true both in reality and the way killian murphy plays him not the whole sexy times thing like this guy loves to loves to get sexy uh <laughs> as we will talk about but the way he is sort of like devoted to to the science and the way he is so he's just like bone thin he's there's like nothing driving him except the work and the science and i think that's fascinating too um and yeah the, the the power of his work you know uh I, I think this movie does wrestle with the idea of like well we are we are geniuses we can make this thing this thing may stop the war but it's is it our responsibility how it gets used i would say yes i would say maybe they should think more deeply about that and this movie does try to wrestle with some of that but i also feel like it's incredibly disjointed um I, I didn't have trouble keeping track of what's going on, but I think the way it was put together felt really disorienting. It does the Nolan thing, which I remember people complaining about during the dark night where it's like the editing is just like, Oh, you're in a completely different space. Like he is not waiting for establishing shots. Like you're going from room to room to room, different places. Uh, two people meet each other and 30, you know, 10 seconds later, they're naked together in a bedroom. Like things progress so quickly. I think the human relationships don't really hit. Uh, I think the women are completely underserved in this movie. Like it is a fucking travesty what this movie does to both of the prominent female characters. Um, I was, I was reminded of, we talk about this a lot when we talk about uh, biopics once again, um, was it uh, Dewey Cox? Yeah. Walk hard. Talk about walk hard. And I'm reminded of Kristen Wiig and walk hard juggling three babies, yelling at Dewey Cox. Oh, you can't do this. Dewey Cox. You can't accomplish this. Dream. Literally that scene, except that this time the wife is supporting him. It's like, yes, I, this is all angry. I'm a drunk. I, you know, this is so hard, but you must accomplish your dream. I'm here to serve you for that dream. I think that's all super disappointing. And I think Nolan of all people, should be aware of what people think of like how he treats women in his movies. Like they, it just happens so often. So I thought that was, that really took me out of it because it really does just go for all the like tortured wife uh, stereotypes. I think like I, I love Emily Blunt, but I think she was vastly underserved by this movie. And yeah, I, it's great. There are some great conversations. I was reminded of JFK a lot too, in terms of like the talkiness and how it tries to like make very, very dry things or just like conversations, very cinematic. I think it does that really well. I'm just left like, man, I, I'm so disappointed by some aspects of this movie while being wowed by some others. And we'll talk about the big, the big set piece that is in there. I think that's beautifully done, but this is a messy movie and you know, it, it's just a shame. Wow. Preach the vineyard. I feel like I agree with yeah. 
pretty much every single thing you said just now. But that being said, Jeff Kanata, so curious what you think about this movie. Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say what I think about this movie is best summed up in the form of a limerick. All right, let's hear it, Jeff. A frog in a tree is a hoppin' climber. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Rap at a stoplight, you're a stoppin' rhymer. <laughs> That's not what it's about, but if Barbie's sold out, you might as well go to see Oppenheimer. <laughs> That's bravo. not my real limerick. That's just a different the, the Oppenheimer. Bravo, limerick right bravo, there. Jeffrey. Yeah. Bravo. That's this yeah. is your Oppenheimer, so to speak. <laughs> you know, that was your Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. It That's did feel like my, three uh, hours. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was supposed to say wrap at a red light, not at a stoplight, because then mm, yeah. it messes it up. But then whatever. You need to stop um, up. Yeah. That's not my real uh, <laughs> limerick. I did it. Uh, that was just a fun one I did. Uh, here's my real limerick. Wow. He's just tossing off masterpieces left and right. Like we we get like, two regular in one episode. Yeah. Uh, it was like when, when Spielberg made Munich and that other movie in one year, right? Like, <laughs> what, did he, what was the other film he War made? The World, yeah. he, yeah. he, War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds in Munich in one year. That was, he's just like, uh, Jeff, I can make two. You know, <laughs> just two, no just toss one off. All right, here we go. Ready? Uh, like Nolan, it's focused and calm. But for me, that's not really a qualm. The script's analytical. It's focused political. It's the acting that's really the bomb. Mm. All right. Wow. Nice. Wow. Nice. nice. Nicely that, done. Very, Very solid. Very solid, Jeff. Thank you. Um, I I don't disagree with a lot of what uh, Devendra said. I also really enjoyed the experience of seeing this, and I and I you know I don't disagree with Patrick on a on a certain level. I don't know if it's going to be my favorite movie of the year. It is. I think it is a very compelling, interesting movie for three hours manages to keep me completely engaged in what is mm-hmm. ostensibly uh, like you said Patrick dudes in a room talking right uh and that's not an easy thing to pull off i i have to admit at being a bit disappointed with how much it is really a biopic and mm-hmm. davinder spoke mm-hmm. to this beautifully it is full on a biopic right yep. And you're right. In the to- negative associations of that mm-hmm. term, right? Is well, in a sort of template, yeah. banal kind of like, I've seen this a million times, biopicy biopic. Yeah. Yeah, 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 And it is a testament to how great artists going to do something that is very uh, staid and uh, run-of-the-mill and expected can elevate that work, right? It, you can... You can have something that is mediocre. Uh, mediocre is the wrong word. It is sort of expected and unsurprising and apply great artists to it and have something that you go, wow, this is extremely well executed. The, the way it's shot, the, the majesty of what you're seeing. And, and again, I will say the acting across the board, but particularly Gillian Murphy, who deserves an Academy Award nomination at the least for this. Uh, he is, I've never seen him work at this level. It, 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 this is an extraordinary performance. He is in 99% of the frames of this movie, has to carry it completely and does it with such an amazing 
sort of groundedness and steadiness that is always watchable. He is always watchable. There is something so confident about his performance and confident about that man, right? He is, it, it is an extraordinary performance. I can't say enough about his work in particular. Um, and you see, like, when you leverage that kind of talent and artistry to what is a, a very sort of mundane, run-of-the-mill kind of experience, it does elevate it. And I walked out of there going, this was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience to step through history in this way. And there's a lot of other great performances. Emily Blunt is great. Robert Downey Jr. is great. There's a lot of great performances throughout. Even small parts are, are well, well executed. But it is still disappointing to me, I think, that this, this filmmaker would sort of approach this material w in this way, that it just feels mm -hmm. so, it feels so formulaic and, uh, and, and, and it doesn't take big risks, really. It, it, and it, you know, and it, I'm curious what you guys think, and maybe this is a conversation deeper to have in spoilers, but I do feel like the goal of this movie is to redeem this man in a certain way. Hmm. And I don't know if I'm on board for that, you know, like it is a disturbing notion, uh, what we are witnessing in this movie and the movie never, the movie I think takes the position consistently that, Hey, you're misjudging this guy. If you sign, you know, the application of science is good, no matter what we're doing. It's like, well, <laughs> no. I don't know if that's true. And, you know, I, I feel like, I feel like this is overall, I feel very positive about, about the movie. I think it is an amazing step through history. I think it gets sidetracked. I am reminded like, uh, Devinder said, I'm very much reminded of JFK. Mm -hmm. Although that movie takes way bigger swings, right? It is, that it's movie has a bonkers. point of view. It's insane, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, about it's, it's, it's crazy yeah. on a certain level, but also yeah. like it has a point of view. Yeah. And, and, mm -hmm. and I don't know that this one necessarily comes out in favor of anything other than like this guy was kind of, you know, treated poorly by people. The title um, should be, I am become deaf? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other, the other movie that I was reminded yeah. of is like, it, this feels more like the Steve Jobs movie mm. than I know. Mm. any previous Nolan movie, right? It is. I, yeah. I, I would disagree with that one, Jeff, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, finish, the, finish what you're saying. Yeah. In yeah. framing device, in sort of yeah. like, you know, we're in this one moment of time. Sure. It's sure. interesting what how Nolan expresses time. And as you'd say, I, I never felt disjointed by it. I thought it was interesting that he sort of flips the visual style and does black and white for what is present day in the movie and color for what are flashbacks mm -hmm. in the movie's language. I thought that was fascinating. Um, I'd never seen anybody do that before. But ultimately, like, I don't think it actually delves into the most interesting stuff of this story in any yep. real way. Yep. And, I, and, and it is compelling what we see on screen, but I think the movie serves best as a, a bridge into doing more investigation into what actually the, the history of this moment, it, it, is, it is not a standalone piece in that regard for me. Like it is only a, uh, uh, an access point to learning more rather than sort of being a comprehensive yeah. um look at all sides of that issue. It, it, 
it just it's it's a very interesting movie and honestly i like it a lot more than some of the most recent <laughs> I, uh, I like it more than dunkirk for example more than mm, most recent I recall, Nolan stuff. yeah but um but overall it's so conventional in its form that i found i came away a bit disappointed in nolan just because i expect more of him yeah mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like there's I, I, that yeah. yeah i agree with a lot of what you said jeff you know it is really sad and tragic to watch a story of this guy who uh created something that like grew beyond his control ended up changing his whole industry and the world um but enough about chris nolan in the dark knight like <laughs> i want to talk about my feelings on oppenheimer and uh i, I agree with a lot of what you guys have said i, I i'm more in line with Devendra a little bit and and Jeff I want to address some of your points in the spoilers mm-hmm. I think it'll be a good conversation I think the stuff that's about the building of the bomb is super interesting like I, I it's just like wow like all these questions the scientists had to confront you know the logistical to, stuff the yeah. logistical stuff like we need to build a place in the middle of nowhere and we need to ship people here from there and it's like basically these scientists helped to create the world that we live in today. When we think of things like mutilation or destruction, when we think of what does an atomic bomb look like, they, they're the ones that help to, to answer those questions in the first place. And it's fascinating to like, the, the movie puts you in that perspective of like wondering, hey, should we proceed if there's a non-zero chance igniting this thing is going to destroy the planet? Like, should mm-hmm. we, like, is it a z- close to zero enough chance that we should do it? You know, it puts you in that perspective. It is a very subjective movie um in the sense that it puts you in the perspective of actually oppenheimer like you see his dreams and visions and hallucinations and in that regard i think it makes full use of the cinematic experience like what christopher nolan is is really well known for so it is an experience you know and and i think it should be watched on a big screen and, and christopher nolan demands it and that's why i really admire this movie i admire christopher nolan i think you should still go see the movie but yeah, I think uh, I agree with a lot of what Jeff said. I, I wouldn't use the word formulaic because there are some ways that Christopher Nolan structures this movie mm-hmm. that are different than a conventional biopic, I would argue, right? Like he uses time in different ways. The the flashback and the flash forward, that stuff, and and the way those things are cut together, I do think is something that Nolan brings to the mix. But I think in terms of pacing, the movie is pretty rough. Uh, I, I, it just... All the bomb stuff basically was great, like in terms of how interesting it was and how thrilling it was and how the questions it raises. And the other stuff that we can talk about in spoilers, I wasn't as much of a fan of Mm -hmm. uh, and and really blunted the impact of the film for me. So those are some of my overall thoughts. Speaking specifically to the the IMAX of it all, uh, I have not seen the movie in full IMAX and I'm curious, Patrick, for you to speak more about that before we get to spoilers. But um, it is interesting that even as far back as, you know, the dark Knight, there are, Nolan seems to select the scenes that are shot in the full format to create a certain impact, right? To create a, to, heightened on these big bombastic set piece moments and it's i found it so interesting that this movie i don't i would never even use the word set piece like there's the bomb moment is a big moment but there's nothing in this movie to me 
that demands seeing it in IMAX. I think it's cool that the movie is shot on film and 70 millimeter, all that stuff. It's cool. It's seeing it on a big screen, but seeing any movie on a big screen is, and it, it's beautifully shot movie. Yeah. But, I, I, but d- there's nothing, there's no moment in this movie that mm-hmm. I felt, boy, I wish I was seeing this on a true IMAX screen. And I'm curious, Patrick, yeah. if I'm wrong there, having actually had that experience. Yeah, I, I mean, it is such an unconventional use of IMAX because generally what we're used to is IMAX is used for spectacle. It's like, see the the giant mm-hmm. action scenes and stuff like that. And the, like, the... The IMAX shots that I think back on, like, most vividly that made, like, the most impression on me are, like, close-ups of Killian Murphy. Yeah. Mm. And uh, and just, like, staring at his, like, haunted eyes that that are, like, each eyeball is, like, the size of a person, like, <laughs> yeah. in real life. Yeah. It is just, it's something that I've never seen done before because you know movies like this are never given this kind of treatment and so it is like and i don't think it's quite as simple as the you know kind of the classic thing of like oh immersion uh because it's like oh you're you know it's the sort of thing like um if uh did we all see the dark knight in imax i did when yes. that first yeah. came out yes. so remember when that first shot comes on and we all feel like we're, we're like falling into the screen because yeah. we've never seen anything mm-hmm. like this before so it's it's not quite that because they do use the IMAX, like they'd have those aerial shots like that for establishing shots, but watching these scenes of just like, like the, the detail and depth on these close-ups and just like forcing like you to just like look so deeply at a person, it like zoomed in further than you've ever seen anything before. Uh, it's, I, I'm having a tough time putting into words like what effect it has mm-hmm. because I mean this is a I think so much of this movie is about just like reading what is in Killian Murphy's eyes and like what is on like Oppenheimer's face because he's not a guy who's like you know talking to everybody about how he feels all the time. This is a right. guy, like I th- I you know I don't want to derail things too much, but um <laughs> I one thing I I do want to address uh. Because, uh, Devinder, you brought up the whole like formulaic biopic thing and the walk hard comparison. The walk hard stuff specifically. And I have seen this movie twice. I have made a whole very long video about biopics where I talked extensively about walk hard. I didn't think about walk hard once during this. I think Mm. it's when the baby started happening, when (laughs) Emily Blunt is shouting, I was like, I haven't even thought about walk hard that much in like a decade. I flashed right back to I got some walk hard. I got some walk hard vibes for sure. I I mean, it's like, I I understand exactly why you made the comparison. And I, I'm not, I, I, I I don't even think you're wrong. I just, I didn't have that experience at all. I didn't think about conventional biopics. And I think the thing is for me is that like, when I think of the kind of biopics that Walk Hard is parodying, those are like the, you know, like birth to earth one. It's like mm-hmm. start as they're a kid, just hit the checklist of everything and uh, until they're an old man. And uh, and this, like, while this does, like, there's aspects of the storytelling here where I, I see how you can make the comparison. This feels like so centered, like singularly on like, this is about one man's obsession with this one particular thing. Sure. And you start, it's uh, Devendra, I'm sorry you missed the opening shot. 
Uh, <laughs> the opening shot is him. Well, it, it, it is a close up of like rain hitting puddles and him mm. looking at that and and him thinking about having these like dreams and visions of these like uh, quantum reactions and stuff like that. And this is the movie starts and he's already obsessed with that. And it follows it through to like the horrifying conclusion of him pursuing this obsession. And I think for me, because it is also focused on that main thread uh, that it didn't like, I didn't get the biopic feeling, which I usually feel like are like, they're they're not telling a specific story. They're just like, that's just like a Wikipedia article. And so getting back to what Jeff brought up, um, I think because uh, so much of, I think, what is really going on in this movie is communicated through just what Killian Murphy is doing non-verbally. I think the IMAX really helps with that because you were just like, your entire field of view is just this guy's face and you have no choice but to stare into his eyes and Killian think Murphy's about bony what, what is going on in his head. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. think it was, uh, was it David Ehrlich's review where he says that like his cheekbones are like basically in 3D, like if you see it in IMAX. <laughs> so much depth. We, yeah. I, I read a thing uh, a, a while back about cinema in general and the fact that we, one of the magic things about movies and the close-up is that we didn't evolve seeing the human face mm-hmm. that close. You never, in life, you never speak to someone right up at them. <laughs> you're, you, you're, you're never that close to another human face having a conversation. But with the, the advent of the camera, the motion picture camera, we were able to put that right here and you're able to be so close to a human being's face that it was anathema to anything that humans had ever experienced before. But we had evolved to read these minute detail and read emotion and meaning from the human, from the tiniest of human. So like having that amplified and then taking it to the IMAX level, it just feels like. Something that the human human beings, it's like mm-hmm. drinking from the fire hose of something we were evolved to pick up on far away, you know? I can, yeah. I can imagine. A couple of things I want to add here. Um, I, I think I still do want to see this thing in IMAX, but I, I was thinking back to Interstellar and what Interstellar did with IMAX and really using that full frame to take us to deep space, like take us to somewhere we'll never be. And I think specifically for the set piece where we do actually see a bomb go off and we see a mushroom cloud, like... I, I want to see, like, how does IMAX take advantage of that? Because, like, we, that's something I I hope to God we will never actually see in person. Mm-hmm, but this mm-hmm. is kind of like the only way to experience that. And, um, yeah. I, I don't think it delivers had, that. Um, well, I felt like that sequence does. Well, but, yeah. Patrick Willems, uh, I'm curious, what percentage of the film yeah. do, would you say is in full frame IMAX? Uh, a surprisingly large amount. Hmm. Uh, so it is, I, if I am correct, uh, so anything that's not IMAX, I believe, is it still shot in either 65 or 70 millimeter? It's supposed to be 65. Yeah, 65. From what I read. And yeah. so it's a thing where, and it's not, there's nothing in like anamorphic. So it's basically between like, kind of like, I think 1851 and then going square. So it's already like a fairly yeah. tall aspect ratio. And um, it will do it sometimes like within a scene. Like, I, mm. I, I'm not talking, like, 
This is Michael not Bay Transformers. Transformers from like, last night. It is not yeah, that. Yeah, where it's cut like, back and forth like eighteen <laughs> times between different aspect ratios. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's not that, but it it will be a thing sometimes, and and it's almost always for like a single person close up. Uh, mm. It'll be a thing like in this is not a spoiler. Uh, when you see in the black and white section, uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character um, sitting in uh, that room. Is it is it in like? Norway or something where Oppenheimer is is like a it's kind of embarrassing him um mm-hmm. in, in like a talk he's he's giving and just this like giant like shot of Downey sitting there as the camera like very steadily kind of like dollies in and it's this it's this razor thin depth of field and so it's only him in focus and yeah. you know it's just you're just looking at this guy reacting silently and um and and it's that kind of shot mostly throughout it is it is like single close-ups and uh and then you know of course aerial establishing shots the yeah. bomb but uh, i i mean for instance yeah. this is the opposite of that but when they first cut to uh those guys riding horses uh through new mexico right. uh and and just the the scale of of this of this aerial shot as it just goes from like huge uh, wide shot down to like you know until you can actually like register like the faces of them it is uh, I I think that's what's so interesting about the use of IMAX you have like the 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 giant sweeping vistas and also the closest close ups you've ever seen in your entire life yeah and it's actually useful mm-hmm. for Patrick to describe this to everyone because. Uh, the majority of people will not be able to watch it in the way that Christopher Nolan intended. It's very unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, sorry, everybody, if you're like yeah, getting FOMO, like listening this. to yeah. this. It's, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jeff, uh, I feel like we actually, not we, you know, on this podcast necessarily, but like we as a society had a similar conversation when Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight came out. Yeah. That Which movie was shot with, uh, with, was shot using Ultra Panavision 70. Mm-hmm. And it takes place mostly indoors. And I remember, this is the sequence I remember. Maybe it's not quite accurate. But I remember one of us saying on this podcast something along the lines of, um, hey, like, it's weird that he felt the need to shoot in Ultra Panda Vision 70. And the whole movie takes place inside. And mutual friend, and I, I don't want to call him out, but like, because I don't have his permission, but mutual friend Dan Trachtenberg, <laughs> I want to say, pinged me and was like, I don't know why you'd give Quentin Tarantino a difficult time about that because, like, why wouldn't you just view it as an aesthetic decision? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it doesn't, sure, you, sure. you don't, it doesn't need to be big vistas for you to use Ultra Panavision 70. And mm-hmm. so, um, that's kind of how I view the I agree with you, Jeff. Like, we associate IMAX with, like, this is when the Transformer hits the other Transformer. Well, we associate yeah. it in, in large part because, because of, of what, the dark how time, right. Nolan has used it. Agreed, agreed. No, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but I think he's obviously not using it that way here. And I think and he's, I, I, he's, yeah. Yes, yeah. I agree. And, and I, I am of two minds about it because mm-hmm. on one hand, I think it's incredible to leverage that specific technology in this way and to use, and, and to be able to display what is, you know, what is really a courtroom drama with flashbacks, uh, you know, and display it with that kind of majesty. There is something powerful about that mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, I saw it on a huge screen in, with, projected in 70 millimeter. It's beautiful, right? I can only imagine that when it fills an IMAX screen, it's even more so. Yeah. But yeah. this is just my own personal aesthetic choice. 
if I'm going to have to, you know, bend myself into all sorts of knots <laughs> to get to an IMAX screen to experience right. it, mm-hmm. sure, this isn't the movie that's going to be high priority for me to do that. And it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that I needed to have, you know, a giant action set piece, but it is kind of what DaVinci was talking about of like being falling into the screen, being transported in, into space mm-hmm. or whatever it is, feels like a compelling reason to rush to the theater, like having this sort of transportive yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and, and maybe that's just my own taste. No, I, th- I think that's very reasonable, Jeff. I think, yeah. I think it's a function of the scarcity of IMAX, right? Maybe if right. they were everywhere, you wouldn't feel the same way. Right. Also, I the, feel like I should have actually seen it a different way the second time so I could compare them. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. all yeah. I can yeah. say is like, yeah. well, I love this movie anyway. And I also saw it in the best possible format. So, yeah. yeah. There's one me, last, I w- yeah. What I want to see in IMAX, and I can't really, is the screen open full when Tom Cruise shoots a motorcycle off a cliff. Like, yeah. that's what I want to see. Yeah, indeed. Uh, there's one last thing I wanted to mention that kind of Patrick and, and Jeff have been talking about. I, uh, I thought you guys, you might have already seen this story, uh, but Jeff, I definitely thought you might enjoy this. Basically, talking about how talented Killian Murphy and Al Pacino are. <laughs> Uh, Christopher Nolan gave an interview recently where he said, talking about like Al Pacino filmed Insomnia with with uh, Christopher Nolan. And uh, Christopher Nolan said, quote, I'd gone up to Al Pacino after a series of takes and gave him a note on what I wanted. <laughs> and Al Pacino told me, I've already done that. You can see it. You can't see it to the eye, but I've done it to the dailies. Okay. And I looked for it in the dailies and I was like, oh my God, there it was. Great film actors can do that, and that's what I had with yeah. Killian. You, do, you don't give Al Pacino notes, okay? It's just, it's just amazing that basically he thinks both <laughs> Al Pacino and Killian Murphy are operating mm-hmm. at a level that is not visible to the human eye, but that if you look at the dailies, you can see. Well, and this I think is the thing yeah. we're talking about. I mean, yeah. especially yeah. on an IMAX screen, like the mm-hmm. what the kind of work you need to, to do when you know your face is going to be... Yeah presented four stories high. It's so subtle. It's so subtle, It's not, it's, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a great uh, Ben Kingsley quote, Sir Ben Kingsley, he's very particular about that. Um, (laughs) Sir Ben Kingsley quote where he says, uh, every take he tries to do less. Mm. He's like, if you give me another take, my goal will be to do less. Love it. Love it. Uh, And I think that's amazing. Um, You know, also, uh, if you guys have not seen the the clip that's going around online right now of Robert Downey Jr. sitting next to Killian Murphy, Murphy and like won't shut up about how amazing he thinks Killian Murphy's performance is. <laughs> yeah. It's well worth seeking out because mm. it's like, here's a guy who's been around doing the acting thing his entire life, second generation filmmaker, like knows he's shit, been in countless movies, biggest movie star on the planet for, you know, stretches yeah. of his life. Sitting next to a, a, a Killian Murphy and just like won't shut up about how good he thinks he is in this movie. It's pretty cool. That's Indeed. pretty great. Indeed. One thing I want to mention there, I have a conspiracy theory. I do think Christopher Nolan is just obsessed with Killian Murphy's eyes because <laughs> Batman Begins, I think his scarecrow work is really fun, but also the key moment in Inception is him crying at the end. And it's like you, you hire that guy for those baby blues, basically. Mm. Well, so, I mean, yeah. Look at those Indeed. eyes. You can't look at those that. eyes. Indeed. Yeah. All right. We have we have so much more to discuss about yep. Oppenheimer. Let's get to spoilers starting right now. I've thought up an ending for my book. It makes no damn sense. Compels me though. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. You can't handle the truth. Inconceivable. I came here tell you how it's going to begin we are now talking about spoilers for christopher nolan's oppenheimer 
Jeff, I think it's a, a good place to start your point about what this movie is trying to say about Oppenheimer, right? Sure. And, and does it redeem him in any way? Um, I think that, in, in my opinion, the movie tells the story from the perspective of Oppenheimer, right? Sure, yeah. And in some ways that inherently uh, does kind of put us in his perspective and make us try to see the world as he sees it. And so it does kind of make us sympathize. There's, there's an inherently sympathetic way that that makes us feel about Oppenheimer. Um, to the film's credit, I do think that uh, it shows that Oppenheimer uh, was A, naive, and that his naivete is proven out, right? Like mm -hmm. he's like, oh, well, once once everyone realizes how dangerous this thing is, no one's going to fight it's all war. It's no, great. No one's going to fight. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and I think we all know that that didn't turn out well. And I think that like mm -hmm. his realization of that naivete is yeah. is depicted on screen in rather compelling fashion. And people um, constantly call him out on that shit too, on not like taking a stand against right, this right, earlier. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And and I do think he is quite he is shown to be not only wrong and naive, but also quite tortured at at the decisions that mm -hmm. he's made. Now, is that um, is that in contradiction with what you said? I don't know. Um, but I am very sympathetic to your view that. Yeah, like telling the story of Oppenheimer from his perspective, in some way redeems him. But Jeff, did you want to elaborate a little bit on like what you mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think I agree with everything you just said in that it it is it is a a side effect of the POV yeah. that the movie is trying to take. But I I would criticize the choice of the filmmaker to to do that in in, yeah. in a sense yeah. because I don't know if I don't know if that serves this historical tale as well as it could mm -hmm. um because i think the movie plays his arrogance as a virtue i think it plays his womanizing as no big deal i think it plays you know that there's a lot of things about his life that are you know i think we are supposed to see him as a hero who got wrongly accused of 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 things and there's a clear villain established who is like yeah. trying to do him dirty and all he was ever trying to do is like you know it, it's like it, it feels he was very just trying to do the science like it, he just it, wants to make a bomb that can kill all the human race <laughs> just wants that's to see where he wants. the formulas of quantum physics take him let that's all. the man make the bomb to pr to, pr to prove to uh, paraphrase aaron sorkin which this movie very much does <laughs> yes let Oppenheimer be Oppenheimer. Okay? <laughs> right. Right. Let him cook nuclear yeah. fission. Let and him yeah, cook nuclear fission. <laughs> the other thing that I think is problematic about that take, and and listen, no, I, I think understand. You're right, yeah. I I went I went to see a movie called Oppenheimer, not mm -hmm. the making of right. the A-bomb, right? Yes. Yeah. However, some of the most interesting stuff about that time period that that moment of history it is like the guy that decided to give the secrets to the soviets like that's a pretty <laughs> interesting thing and the movie is like has that happening in the periphery but it's played only as oppie didn't do it <laughs> like right yeah, yeah, there's a, oppie, you know so uh there's a youtube channel called veritasium very famous youtube channel um that made a 30 minute long youtube video about oppenheimer's life um, watching that YouTube video helped to give me so much more context for why stuff was shown in the movie. Like for instance, mm -hmm. there's a scene in the movie where somebody's getting a haircut and they realize that so-and-so has split the atom. 
you know? And so they like run out of the barbershop and they're like, hey, did you see? And the newspaper shows to flip the ad. I'm like, what an odd scene to just put randomly <laughs> in the middle of the movie. And, and you yeah. realize like, that's how it happened in real life. Right. Uh, That's how it happened in real life was someone was getting a haircut and Christopher Nolan was like, oh, what a delightful detail. I must put that in the film. Wait, but it ends, <laughs> Dave, it, you need the YouTuber to confirm this for you. I, also, I David, yeah. to be fair, uh, <laughs> the scene is not about the guy getting the haircut. Oppenheimer is walking down the street and sees a guy run out of the barber shop and then mm-hmm. runs after to be like, what is going on? Completely, well, completely fair. But I guess I just feel like. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the the as you said, Patrick, like the worst of a biopic can be we're just hitting these notes from a Wikipedia entry. And that's sometimes what the film felt like to me. And in particular, yeah. with characters like the Casey Affleck character or Jeff, you know, the people who like sold the, you know, it's offhanded. Hey, this guy that was in, in all the scenes of the movie. Oh, by the way, he like portrayed the U.S. You know, whatever. No big deal. And yeah, well, the whole point again. of it is like, don't <laughs> accuse Oppie of that bad thing because he didn't know anything about Oppie's it. And it's I, like. Yeah, evidently there is a movie coming out very soon, a a, a documentary called The Compassionate Spy that is all about that thing, Mm -hmm. about the guy who is like, in order to save the world, we can't have one person have the A-bond. We have to have, not person, one one entity. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and and literally his whole position is like, the only way that we all don't, you know, conform to one super, if we have one superpower, that's bad. If we have two superpowers, that is less enough bad that it has to happen. <laughs> then, then they're at a standstill. Then they could just point guns at each other. But Jeff, right. to what you're saying, this movie definitely mythologizes the character too. Like there's one scene that I cannot get out of my head. And it's when, um, you know, David Krumholtz's character, who I love, who is out there just taking care, taking eat something, buddy, um, <laughs> taking care of Oppenheimer. And, uh, he he was like, you know, why are you dressed in this military outfit? Be yourself. Oppenheimer goes to his bat cave and laid out this <laughs> his uniform, the hat. The yeah. Hat. And he yeah. puts it on like Batman putting on the cape. I'm like, well, yeah, clearly the movie is telling us something like is, is this figure who we always see in pictures, the skinny face, the pipe and the fedora hat like that is it. And I think the movie is guilty of mythologizing him just because he is so fascinating. I think Nolan does get overboard in that respect. On that note, I don't know if I told you guys, I don't think I told you, somebody showed up to my Oppenheimer press screening cosplaying as Oppenheimer. Oh my God. It's not hard. It's not hard. hard. (laughs) Guys, I... So it was. You think maybe that's just how he dresses. <laughs> yeah, so, sorry, one sec. Let me uh, put on my hat. Oh, well, uh, okay. sorry. This is the closest thing I had. Um, yeah. But I so at the theater last night. It was fascinating because you know just being in the lobby. There were so many people cosplaying for Barbie. Uh, I really enjoyed seeing people dressed in like. Like women in like full pink dresses going up the escalator to the IMAX uh, theater, being like, "Oh, okay, they're they just did Barbie. They're doing the whole Barbenheimer thing." But I, uh, I actually, I should send this to uh, to you guys. Um, I took a photo of this in the lobby. A group of six dudes, six friends, <laughs> all posing in front of the giant cardboard standee for Oppenheimer, uh-huh. all wearing their their fedoras. No. So, so people people showed up dressed. It's, it's really bringing out the worst. You're yeah. right. <laughs> just real fans of mutually assured destruction. You know. So, actually, one thing that I I I wanted to bring up in relation to uh, what Jeff was talking about is uh, we've been making comparisons to 
different movies that this reminded us of. Um, you know, uh, biopics, walk <laughs> hard. Um, I, JFK. I, uh, JFK, Jeff, you brought up uh, Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, yes, uh, which which is one that I I also thought about during the movie. But I feel like like the most obvious point of comparison is Miyazaki's The Wind Rises. Mm, because good call. Good that, I thought you were going to say yeah. A Beautiful yeah. Mind, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> uh, not, not I, yeah, does Alzheimer have a beautiful mind? Uh, mm, kind of does, but yeah. because you know The Wind Rises set. Same time period, uh, just about the country they're at war with. Um, and that is another movie about a filmmaker making a biopic about someone that probably in some ways they like see like some some resemblance uh, to some like they see themselves like reflected to an extent back in this real person. Mm-hmm. And The Wind Rises is about a man who is obsessed with flight and all he wants to do is build airplanes because he thinks they are beautiful. He thinks of himself as an artist. And then it turns out the one way to actually like make his dreams a reality to, to build these beautiful things is through warfare is by building machines of death that will have guns on them and drop bombs and it is a movie about wrestling with uh you know that moral dilemma of like you know i are are my personal dreams and my own fulfillment and my obsessions worth the end result of them and that i think is exactly it's what oppenheimer is about well but do you think do you think you came away from this film with an understanding of Oppenheimer's uh, internal life other than an, obs- an obsessive uh, thirst for science. It, do you think that is enough? Here's my point. I feel like this movie speaks to the ideologies that were surrounding the moment mm-hmm. and only tells us what Oppenheimer does not believe, right? Mm. It, there, there is so much spoken about like, oh, he was a member of the Communist Party, but guys, he didn't believe it. He didn't actually. Oh, he was never. He was never. He was never flirting with. He was never a member of the. You know, yeah. like, there was all this stuff. I, I never got any insight into what he actually yeah. does believe. Like, I wish. What movie... is his ideology other than? Yeah. I believe in science, and I think maybe that's maybe that's the sum total of it but i suspect not i suspect there's more it's more sophisticated than that but this movie isn't interested it's only trying to defend him mm-hmm. against the accusation that he was a communist it does bring up actually trying to present yeah what he was where his ideologies were resting it does bring up some ideas and i think like the romances and i think like the female relationships like it just like puts things out there. It's like, oh, puts out breadcrumbs and expects you to draw the dots to them. But, you know, as a Jewish scientist and also David Krumholtz's character is a Jewish scientist, and I think he felt that, like, there was something happening here, especially, you know, with with everything happening in Germany. Like, he felt an urge to do something. Yeah. That, I wish the movie had, like, conveyed that more if well, that was the, actually a thing. Yeah. The, 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 I think his ideology... So, Jeff, I agree yeah. with you. It's not super deep mm-hmm. as conveyed in the film. Um, but I think his ideology is best summed up in the conversation he has with David Krumholtz, where David Krumholtz is like, sorry, can't, can't do this. Can't help yeah. build something that's going to kill people. And he's like, look, I don't know if it's the right thing to build the bomb, but like, I know that it's the wrong thing for the Nazis to have it. Right. Yeah. Like, yes. And so yes. whatever the case, we need to stop them from being the first ones. I get that. And I think that's powerful, but, but I feel re- like the, go ahead. Which then, which then like, he's, which is like a very understandable 
thing to be motivated by, the mm-hmm. thing to be motivated by. But then what happens, obviously, is... Well, it turns out we don't really need to use it against the Nazis. And, yeah. oh, well, the Japanese, we can still say some lies, but maybe we actually didn't need to do that. You know, like, and so he he starts with these very positive, or not positive, but like reasonable intentions yeah. that then get obviously twisted and distorted until his creation is used for something that he didn't even want in the first place. And that's why it's a tragedy, right? But yeah. I agree with you, Jeff, that it's like, fundamentally, it's like, oh, it's about this guy who like had good intentions and then... It went badly. But he, like, he's so smart, but so dumb. But the about, guy like, was at yeah. least like not that bad, right? So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I wish the movie had spent more time on that idea too. That Hitler's dead, right? Germany's defeated. We have Japan here, and what what is that situation like? I wish I would love to see more exploration of the alternatives or the people who are just like, yeah, we we got to do this. We got to destroy that, and that's something I think about a lot. Like what we did, what America did to Japan, is an awful like earth shattering event and i think we don't really reckon with that too much i was almost hoping like this movie we see the bomb sequence like halfway through this movie pretty much i was like okay what's the final hour like will we get actually uh oppenheimer like um you know fantasizing about like being there in person or seeing it or going through that experience that's something we see in the james mangold movie the wolverine we don't (laughs) see it well, he doesn't here. have that whole fantasy sequence yeah. of seeing the woman with the charred face. In yeah, he pants. sees like right. he sees the people in the audience, but like I would have liked that they would have gotten news footage, they would have gotten photos, they would have gotten like the experience of the people on the ground, and rather than him just being in his own head, being like, "Am I guilty? I don't well, he, know, guys." There's the scene Can't where he's yeah. literally watching the footage. Yeah, uh, we don't see the footage, thankfully, but uh, you know, he he watches. I for me, the more yeah. chilling scene is the sort of dispassionate meeting where it's like. Where should we bomb? Well, I don't want to go bomb yeah. there because we yeah. my, we vacationed there. It's lovely. You know, that that was like, oh, gee, Awful. they're literally talking about hundreds of thousands of people being incinerated. And he's like, yeah. my wife yeah. and I did our honeymoon there. And so uh, I, I'd yeah, rather not. If he'd not... gone to a honeymoon in a mm-hmm. different place, like the different set of people would be. It's go- just, uh, just it, chilling. It, it, it is worth discussing. Yeah. Just I just for a brief moment. Um mm-hmm. I don't think there's a single Asian person in this entire film, if no. I recall correctly. Right. And not that I recall. I, I don't. Look, not all movies need to be all things. And clearly Christopher Nolan wanted to tell this specific story. I personally was actually okay with the way he told it, but there's been some people who are like, you know, what, it, like, uh, Japanese people were completely erased from this movie. And it's like, uh, I understand why he chose to not show it because it's like, then he's kind of like profiting off of, you know, the movie's like profiting off of or using their misery and, and suffering. Um, at least in the context of the story that he's trying to tell. Like if, if they had showed the dropping and, and showed the footage or whatever, then it, it it would feel, I think, weirder to me than the approach that they chose. But I do think, I just think it's worth noting that they mm-hmm. took that approach, which is like, we're just, we're not even going to deal with any of the consequences up close. Even though we're that's gonna... what, that's what the movie is ultimately about towards the end. Like exactly. his whole so feeling. It's, it's, so... it's kind of an odd, you know, I, I, I understand why they did it that way. And I, I don't, I'm not saying yeah. they should have done it a different way, but it's, it's at least worth noting that they did it. I'm thinking it of the way. movie. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Tora, 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 but that is, that is a movie that both has the American and Japanese perspective right. exactly. of that exactly. experience. And like, that would have been something just, yeah. I but feel it's, like it's not the story that he wanted to tell. And so not. I understand. This but is yeah, based on a biography right. and that's what the biography is Unless doing. he just, pulls yeah. a Clint Eastwood and yes. then goes mm. and makes the, uh, yes. the movie <laughs> about, <laughs> I don't know, a Japanese scientist? Yeah. Oppositeheimer? Yeah. Mm. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, speaking of, let's talk about some of the other filmmaking choices, okay? Um, 
I think this is the most subjective one of Christopher Nolan's movies. There's more like dreamlike stuff happening in this movie than in Inception, in my opinion, mm-hmm, which is about mm-hmm. dreams. Like <laughs> you see like random flashes of visions and then um, <laughs> people having sex inside like these hearing rooms. The um, poor Florence Pugh. I thought it was movie. I thought yeah. it was weird. I didn't yeah. I didn't think it worked for me. I wish filmmakers like Spielberg and Nolan would stop showing sex scenes intercut with other things that are happening at the same time. Um, that sex scene. Let first Dave of all. enjoy the sex scene. Let Dave enjoy the sex scene. The sex scene. The first one with Florence Pugh, by the way, was was the thing that started all those articles. Like this movie is going to have a prolonged, steamy sex scene. It is thirty seconds, and Florence Pugh pulls a book, and they have and sex she, while reading the book. And she asks you to start reading it while they're having sex, which is like well, a normal. That's a normal that's thing a that totally most people thing. do, right? No, so. that that was when I I did want to shout out. I was like, oh, Christopher Nolan just does not know humans. Like, does not understand. <laughs> human yeah, it, it felt like it felt it's like so, someone someone yeah. who has like some kind of clinical understanding of sex making a movie about the <laughs> patrick williams what I, did I you like, think of I, no i like that the, that she opens the book yeah, yeah. just randomly asked him to pick me. the one thing we've all heard <laughs> yeah. from sanskrit yeah. you know yeah, yeah. it is patrick uh, yeah what'd you think genuinely like straight up uh that <laughs> the addition i mean there there's two sex scenes in this movie mm-hmm. and one of them is a dream uh yeah. but the first one like hands down one of my favorite scenes in the movie i'm just like <laughs> other than just like the sheer shock of witnessing sex in a christopher nolan movie true like when when they announced mm-hmm. the rating for this and it said for like rated r for some sexual content i was like this must be a, a typo like <laughs> what's happening here in, in a christopher nolan movie like like impossible but uh but just just the sheer image of like Oppenheimer lay, <laughs> laying back in bed uh-huh. while a a, a woman <laughs> climbs on top of him and at <laughs> to to perform intercourse while he reads uh, the Sanskrit "I am become death, destroyer of worlds." Mm-hmm. I'm like that is like we have the act of. Of of creation and the words of of like Armageddon, like yeah. you know, like on top Amazing. of each other. Amazing. It is like oh, wonderful look, symbolism, Patrick. Yes, I I, yes. I do not care how unsubtle it is. I, I I'm like this. <laughs> this is like right here. I'm, I'm like we have. <laughs> like like i get this guy like like right here he is like that, that was i don't know that was the point where i was like christopher nolan does not have friends he does not have friends <laughs> he's like the- buddy buddy <laughs> buddy let's let's take this step See, that was the moment where i was like hell yeah this is my yeah, movie yeah, yeah. of the year let's go i mean go. He, well he, yeah I'll, he he definitely feels like a robot trying to understand human yes. beings the moment yes. later on is i think even more like equally bizarre when i think cr- that one it works because it's the wife from like thinking but about we're, that we're in emily and, yeah. blunt's perspective a perspective that we are basically not in for Never most get. of the movie so i'm like why are you showing us emily blunt's perspective in any so i i thought it was quite odd but mm-hmm. also yes it it does give you some insight into how christopher nolan thinks which Wait, i guess is how, how does he value, think? right i, I yeah. will say i think as far as the second scene goes i'm like i'm of two minds about it like i think it is actually like a very effective scene uh, yep. I th- yep. like I, th- I think the reveal of it, the way the camera dollies and Oppenheimer is 
is now He's shirtless. unclothed. Yeah. Naked. Yeah. And um, it, it's like my one issue is just that it's the only time that we're really not not the only time, but it's because uh, like we we see a couple parts where like you know with Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt where like you know she gets the phone call and stuff like that, but this is the only time we like really subjectively go into yep. what she's like what's in her head, and uh, and I'm like this is. I think a very effective scene in terms of like, I, I, I think it is powerfully communicating what it intends to. I just, I do just wonder like, why is this the only moment exactly. that we have that? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, that's my issue with it. It's not the concept. It's that it happens in the rest of the context of this film. Um, let's talk about the bomb going off guys. Uh, I thought this sequence was really pretty masterful. Like some of the best Nolan, you know, the, it, it most of the movie honestly feels like a heist, like Inception mm-hmm. style, where like they're trying to do this thing and then they finally gotta put the team together. Off. And of course, yeah. it's very yeah. horrifying. Like the implications are horrifying to comprehend and behold. Um, but just as a as a pure piece of, I, I know I know Jeff, you said you wouldn't describe it as a set piece, so I I, I can a- agree with that. But I think just as a sequence, yeah, I, no, very very effective. It. Just like the mm-hmm. the way it's shot and edited, like you see it before you hear it and. Uh, I'll tell you, my packed theater was completely silent. Yeah, as the movie, like as the movie itself, is completely silent during that movie. It's a really powerful moment of awe and terror. I think I had the thought. Listen, I agree with you that it is an 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 amazing sequence. Not gonna just like full stop. Yeah, it's an amazing sequence. I do think I had the thought. Uh, while I was watching it, that this, as it was approaching, I was like, this is the motorcycle jump off the cliff moment. Mm. This is the thing we all knew this movie had to get to. It was what everybody was talking about. Here is Nolan going to show off how he does his own stunts. There's no CGI here, right? I'm doing my own stunts. How am I going to do it? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And I think it isn't about that at all. Right, I think it is an effective scene for zero reasons that I, at least, I only speak for myself, but I think a lot of people were anticipating it coming up in the movie. In that, mm-hmm. it's like, oh my gosh, you actually blew up a bomb. No, 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 no. What's it, what's effective about that sequence, from my perspective, is that we are seeing it through these people's eyes and the tension of will it happen? Will it not happen? Will it end the world? And yeah. will it of, kill everyone here? That which is also a possibility, you know. And yeah. and the sort of um, the sort of variety of reactions that we yeah. get yeah. Uh, are, I mean, some amazing subtlety there in this like complicated moment of we did the thing, and also it is horrifying what we did, and then that like rousing sort of cheering moment where we literally have Oppenheimer framed in front of the American flag. And mm-hmm. it's like, and it's so hollow and you go, Oh my God, they did a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. Um, I thought all of that was spectacular. And for me, 0% of it percentage of it is how did he pull off the visualization of the bomb? Because ultimately it's just a big bright light. And yeah. that's, that's fine because the scene isn't about that. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, Jim. I think that's really well said. Patrick Willems, any thoughts on on the kind of that that sequence, that, which is arguably the climax of the film? Yeah, I, I mean, no. Uh, basically, I'm just going to echo what Jeff was just saying. It is like it is like again, like the uh, the 
I think the most striking images in that scene are just when, like, kind of the close-ups where it's just the entire screen is just, like, rolling fire. Like, when it gets mm-hmm. really surreal, it's like you're, you're, you're in yeah. too close to even really determine, like, what you're looking at. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I think the, like, the point of the scene is really just, like, how everyone reacts to it. Yeah. And, and it's funny because all the talk about the movie, especially, like, hearing Nolan say, like, oh, we, we're not going to use any CGI for, you know, for the bomb. And everyone's, like, you know, making the jokes about, like, oh, he, like, actually detonated a nuke for real and stuff like that. And then after the movie, I'm just, like, that's not even, like, r- very good scene, but that's not, like, you would think that the bomb detonation scene would be the scene in Oppenheimer everyone would be, like, thinking about afterwards. And I'm like, no, that's, like, I don't know, maybe, like, number 10 on my list. Oh, wow. I, for me, honestly, the scene that I remember more is the one that happens after the bomb goes off where Oppenheimer is giving a speech to all the people that are, like, hooting and hollering, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, great job. Um, do you know what it reminded me of, guys? This is a deep cut. Mm. The Animatrix, The Second Renaissance. Okay. Yes. yes. Part one there, or part two, Dave? <laughs> I don't. I don't remember which part. But there's a scene in the Animatrix, the Second Renaissance, uh, which is the anime version of Matrix stuff, where they tell the backstory of what happened before the Matrix. And there's a scene where, like, the UN decides that they're going to black out the sky. I think to to uh, attack the machines. And everyone's applauding this plan. They're like, "Yeah, great plan!" And then, like, you see the humans become skeletons clapping. And it was like that always stuck in my head that like humans might like applaud their own destruction. Um, might. It really, <laughs> it really stuck with me, and it it reminded me so much of this scene where Oppenheimer is going into this room. Everyone's hearing, and the sound design of that scene is incredible because and I, I for a moment because we'd had projection problems, I almost wondered if something mm-hmm. went wrong with the projection. Like, <laughs> did you was there like a part of the soundtrack that was missing? Because you hear like you hear people like standing up in the chairs but you don't hear any of their audio. You don't hear any mm-hmm. of their voices. Yeah. And, and and it's just like, and then all of a sudden like smash cuts to, then you hear them again and then you stop here. And it's, a, it's incredible because you can feel like his world is just becoming unmoored. Like he under, he realizes like the implications of what he's done. Um, and it, he's like spiraling. He can't even perceive reality anymore. It's, um, I thought yeah. it was a really fascinating. Scene, I think so. that whole sequence is part of the bonk sequence. Honestly, like it is, you know, sure. it's, it's, Fucking around and it's finding out, and that's, that's <laughs> ultimately that yeah. that is that is those two sequences put together. Personally, I do want to know how they made the visuals for the bomb. I think that'd be kind of interesting. But the way they shot it is like you're looking at the surface of the sun, and I do yeah. think that part of it is really interesting. I, the the impact of the visual seeing it before you feel it to you is very. From what I've read, that is how a lot of these things happen. Yeah. Um, I thought that was, was just pretty like lightning well and thunder. Well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, actually, I w- uh, Dave, if, if I could say a bit more about please. the scene you were just talking about, because please. I think yeah. that that is like, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the, the, the great scenes in the movie. Agreed. But I mean, Agreed. just yeah. as far as the sound design goes, I the way that like initially just the, the pounding feet like sound yeah. like an explosion. And yeah. a thing that that struck me uh, on, on second viewing is when Oppenheimer is sorry, when Oppie is uh, is walking out of the, the building afterwards and everyone is losing their minds. Um, a thing that that they repeat a couple of times is he'll look at someone, then it cuts away, then it cuts back to the person he looks at. And each time, and like, for instance, there's one part, he looks at a woman who is like, 
like laughing and looks like looks so happy and then it yeah. comes back to Oppenheimer and, and then he looks at her again and then she's like sobbing and then he sees two yeah. people who are like making out under the bleachers and then he looks back at them and like and they seem to be crying right he goes one out, of them's con- like consoling the other right? exactly yeah. he goes outside yeah. and there's a guy like vomiting with yeah. like <laughs> snot coming out of his nose and uh and you know like d- all of these things. I mean, look, I'm I'm thinking it all comes back to the sex scene with Florence Pugh, where he is having sex while also thinking about uh, destroying the world. <laughs> yeah, as we all do. I mean, as we all do I mean, every day. We've all been That's there. Yeah. I will um, tell you that I was stunned. I, I mentioned this earlier. I was stunned that there was an hour of movie left after the bomb goes <laughs> off, and I found the other stuff to be so much lower stakes and so much less interesting to me. Than the bomb stuff, uh, than the building the bomb stuff. But I'm curious, you know, how it worked for you guys, because I think Patrick certainly mm-hmm. worked much better for you. Like the movie ends with, I think Rami Malek giving testimony yeah. at this hearing to try to take down Robert Downey Jr. That's that's kind of the culminate. Well, the, it was you know, uh, final event of the movie, right? What's his face? Uh, whose name I'm I'm not I'm not even thinking of right now. But that whole that final hour has uh, some really interesting sequences. I think the meeting the president. Meeting, yeah, you know, um, yeah, Gary yeah. Oldman as Gary Truman. Oldman, yeah, pretty, pretty, Gary pretty cool. really good, yeah. and also like the it just as disheartening as the picking the place to bomb in Japan scene. It was like, yeah. he's trying to do something, and the president's like, get out of there, this is my <laughs> thing, and I don't want to yeah. talk to that whiner again, yeah. Um, all that stuff I think worked really well. The trial, I think, is really well done, but the, but the problem is not like, a trial, oh, Devendra, as people not, as not point out in the movie 18 times, but yep, not a trial, <laughs> but also the Senate hearing afterwards, I think, are both really well done. But here's again where I wish we had more of a perspective from Emily Blunt's character because when we go every night, it's just her yelling at them, Why aren't you fighting back with a drink in her hand? She's at the she's at the meeting with a drink in her bag, and um, <laughs> it's just the same thing. Over and over again. She well, has we, one great scene where yeah, she, that scene in, that scene where yeah. she takes him takes down the prosecutor uh, yeah. is pretty pretty great. But, pretty fantastic. Yeah. I just wish like leading up to that, it was a little more than one note. That's all. Yeah. Um, Willems, what did you think of of how this movie ended? The last hour. Uh, so on my first viewing, this was the this stretch was the one where I was the most kind of unsure how I felt about it. Uh, uh, and I think, you know, part of this is just like, there are so many names and so much information and when you're jumping around so much in time and I'm like trying to, trying to work out all of it. And then on second viewing this, like this, all this stuff all clicked really hard for me. I mean, I, I think, you know, the basic point of it is just, uh, you know, it's spending all this time on just like, I, I, again, we've brought up this guy's naivety, uh, like already but like you know he was a scientist who just who really wanted to do he do his work and pursue this obsession and um and then you know afterwards this is just you know america's military industrial complex basically being like you know you know we can't tolerate this guy who 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 actually mm-hmm. wants us to not keep going with this and uh and so we like we we it doesn't matter if he was like on the cover of time magazine and you know we called him a hero uh we will we will bury anyone who tries to get in the way of um of us building bigger and bigger bombs and um and then i think one of the most compelling parts of it is at some point when emily blunt points out uh that he's like 
basically like rolling over and letting them do this to him because he thinks he like deserves to be punished for for what he's like this is basically just him like through other people just like you know this is less like self-flagellation yeah. for you know for all for like for this last stretch of the movie and then you know it it culminates in just the final the final scene which is just him sitting there imagining you know that just just thinking about uh oh oh i i i did even if hitting the button didn't make the atmosphere catch on fire uh i i did basically ruin the world forever <laughs> I, I wish the movie had spoken as clearly as you just did, honestly, because it, I will say I on feel, second viewing, it really did for me. I, so, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I've only had one viewing, so perhaps my opinion would also change. But I feel like that notion that the the military mil, military industrial complex is kind of putting him through the grinder is blunt is Emily blunted. Because uh, nice. um, because the movie takes so much effort to establish this like very pulpy Robert Downey Jr. was pissed off that you said the one thing and so he's going to take you down. And it's it's it becomes so. Um, I don't know. It, I feel like. A more sophisticated, interesting position for the movie to take is the one you articulated is that, you know hey, this larger systemic thing means that any one individual is going to get churned up and spit out no matter how important you think you are or actually mm -hmm. were to this yeah. effort. But what the movie actually is doing is creating this very Hollywood, like you can't handle the truth moment um, with a character who like you said one bad thing and he harbored a resentment for you for years and years and years. And the big reveal of the movie is what Einstein actually said that it wasn't about him. And there's right. like, there's a certain joy and satisfaction in watching Robert Downey Jr. gnash his teeth and get his comeuppance. And I, I'm not saying that wasn't effectively uh, executed, yeah. but I don't yeah. think, I think for mm -hmm. me that took away from what you're saying. I, th I think yeah. it was doing both, but the movie does it shorthand. It does the big topics and then it does shorthand. Oh, this happened. By the way, look at this flashback. Like, look at this dream sequence. This is what I'm trying to say. And I think, I don't know. I feel like he has a hard time juggling communicating effectively with these two things. Yeah. I, I agree with you, Jeff, that it reduces it down to yeah. like a petty rivalry instead yeah. of, instead of, I don't think of Robert Downey Jr.'s character as like he represents the military industrial complex right. necessarily. He's just mm -hmm. a dude that's pissed mm -hmm. off at Oppenheimer. Now, I will say that what Robert Downey Jr. does represent is people throughout the movie are like trying to mess with scientists shit. Like they're trying yeah. to like yeah. tell you, you guys don't actually know how to use, we know how to use it, you know, like, and so he is indicative of that, but it is a weird thing to pin the client, like the final reveal on is like, weird. oh, it's because um, Oppenheimer said his dad was a shoe sale, a lowly shoe salesman. And that's why Robert Downey Jr. is so pissed this whole well, time. Well, no, it's because of isotopes. It's like this guy, right, I, know. I, don't, I don't give a shit about your isotope. The idea. Yeah. He suffered, Isotopes. Let's just all agree that Robert Downey Jr. has suffered multiple indignities at his hands. Okay? <laughs> but, yes, yes. But it I, is interesting, though, that Tony Stark, military industrialist, <laughs> yes. is. Yeah. Uh, I, I will also, say, um, mm -hmm. Robert Downey Jr. gave an interview, I think it was with mm -hmm. the New York Times, where he expressed fear that working in Marvel movies would ruin his ability to act. Yeah. Well, and, I think uh, it did for a I while. Say, 
I think he yeah. did great in this movie. I Unfortunately, he great, yeah. his mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars will have to console him in the future. I know, it's tough. Unfortunately. It's tough. It's tough. But <laughs> it is worth pointing out. I think this is his most like un-Tony Stark performance yes. since starting yeah. that. He like, can act like a yeah. guy that's not like Robert Downey. He's great. I mean, to, be, to be fair, he's great Vendor, how many yeah. non-Tony Stark performances has he it's given true. since then? It's true. Yeah, but this is one of them. This is one of them. What do you think? Did you like Robert Downey Jr. in the movie, Patrick? Yes, David. I thought... He was excellent. I think, yeah. you know, here's, I'm coming in with a scorching hot take. Uh, I think the cast for the, this movie is very strong. What? Uh, overall, a <laughs> uh, lot, of, lot of good actors uh, doing good work. Doing good uh, work. I will say I was uh, also glad to see that Rami Malek did get to speak. Because yeah. for the whole movie, whenever he yeah. shows up, he's standing like kind of behind a couple people, and I'm like, <laughs> I mean, it would like be eyes wide, just like what? I, 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 I know, the, the, uh, you know, man with the largest eyes in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, I'm like, did did they real? I know this is a stacked cast, but is he really there just to like stand silently? Uh, but no, he does. He does get some dialogue. But uh, he and Killian Murphy are having a large eye off. It's true. Yeah. It's, it's true. ultimately it. Yeah. The, That's uh, like, give, me the, give me those close-ups. Like, back I know. Back. Yeah. It's, I mean, actually, here's a question just for the group. Who, okay, who are our faves among, mm. um, there are so many people, mostly white men, in this movie. It is, it is surreal. Just it's, like, like, it's David Krumholtz. It is completing the 10 things so I hate about you fan fiction that Chris Nolan has been doing forever. Um, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, wow. it's Krimhold. It's he's true. awesome in this. People from that All movie have Heath Ledger. Chris Nolan movies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah JGL. JGL. Where is Julia Stiles? Ooh. That, look. That would be good. The next one. Look, look I'm sure there's like a dead wife part that, uh, you know, with her name on it. <laughs> a wife who's angry about the babies all the time. Um, I... I don't know if this was just me, but the first time I saw the trailers for this movie, I thought the Matt Damon role, I thought that was Jesse Clements. I do feel like they're sort of like converging <laughs> mm. as like the same face. But, well, weird. the guy in real life was was quite large. Yeah. yeah, yeah so I think yeah. that Damon was trying to get a little large for the part. Mm-hmm. That part actually did, that part of the movie did work for me. In real life, Oppenheimer mm-hmm. and the character and the guy, uh, Rhodes, I th- Groves, Leslie Groves, they mm-hmm. did have like a very unlikely partnership. And I did get a sense like, hey, these are really different people that are working together to accomplish this goal. And I, I did appreciate that. So, yeah. Um, uh, also, but yeah, it, uh, as far as like the Damon stuff goes, I feel like uh, Nolan's writing some like the closest to Sorkin dialogue yeah. he's ever it's very done. Sorkin. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's like, it is, look, this is a, a fairly bleak movie. It is surprisingly funny. People talk about Nolan as like this humorless, emotionless guy. And I think especially like a lot of the stuff with with uh, with Damon and Murphy is like mm-hmm. genuinely pretty funny. It's really funny. That sex scene was also hilarious. So <laughs> it's not yeah. a laugh riot this movie. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, I, I do have to shout out as as the guy who did five years ago do a podcast about the the filmography of Josh Hartnett. It, I, I've, Dude, I felt such pride. He is, he is luminescent on the screen. Heart, the heart renaissance or the heart renaissance is upon. You know what I thought? He David, walks it, it, on screen in that in that in that um, uniform, and I'm yeah. like, we need Josh Hartnett in a reboot of the Rocketeer immediately. <laughs> oh my God. You're Make right, it dude. happen. He's the Rocketeer. It, it, Rocketeer. He's so like, I love him being just like, kind of like the cool dashing friend to this like skeletal weirdo over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, but yeah, I was just, I was so happy to see my boy after all these years of being like, Josh Hartnett's going to have a comeback. I know it. 
curious. Yeah, so between he, this I'll, and Black Mirror, amazing. it's a good year. Yeah. Oh yeah. I it, another thought I had that I wonder if you guys shared is uh, I know that there's definitely an you know an indictment of the military military I can say that phrase military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Um, however, <laughs> I did walk out of this movie thinking, and isn't it amazing? That the military can just decide to make a town in Los Alamos and leverage hundreds of thousands of people to one effort. We did that. We decided to put a man on the moon. We just did it. Just did it. Anything that happens like this now, it's private industry that does it. Well, you know, war war is a pretty good. Google has decided we're going to do it. Facebook meta has decided we're going to do it. Those are the only people that leverage these kind of resources and make things happen. And or Apple says, you know what? We're going to make the mm-hmm. best AR goggles of all time. But to, to make it clear, Jeff, war is a pretty big motivator. And I feel like that it's that. The moon yeah. landing seems like it's it's a well, war yeah. against another another country. Two if billion only dollars. Had, if only we had some dollars, global man. threats recently that would motivate us if to do only. If I will only. also say, Jeff, uh, I, I, I really appreciate you kind of being... Um, keen like keen to observe like how the movie sort of redeems Oppenheimer in whatever way it does but I do think the movie also leaves out all the part where the people were evicted from their homes and their their businesses and homes destroyed to build Los Alamos that's just not even in the movie at all right. well, um, there's that one line where he's like yeah. give it back yeah, to yeah, give the, it back to the, it's like oh really interesting like, yeah, good, get out of good, my office you moron <laughs> good, good advice but uh, also we didn't see the part where you took it from them depicted in the <laughs> yeah. movie so yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally okayed that yeah <laughs> yeah agreed but um but yes I agree there's something kind of awe-inspiring and also equally terrifying and upsetting about the fact that we can just conjure this thing out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that, that yeah. part is almost like we can conjure the things we need right now, yes. you know, solutions like nationalized healthcare and an end to homelessness and better public education. It would be amazing if yeah. we could put that amount of energy into well, what we did for the atomic bomb and the moon landing. Yeah. I also think the movie is intended to, I mean, I think Nolan has been explicit with this in, in mm-hmm. interviews. Um, is intended to sort of uh, evoke the race toward AI right now, mm-hmm. and it, you know it's it's hard not to think about how right. it's yeah. literally a for profit endeavor, right? What yeah. is driving the the race toward grander and grander expressions of artificial intelligence? It's uh, the quest for money, and in both the space race and the Manhattan Project. That was not the case, right? Hey, Jeff, don't worry. There's a lot of scary nationalism going on, too. Trust me. <laughs> a lot of people are worried about China's AI, and that is yeah. a great motivating that's, factor that's right now. That's true, so but we're gonna, I think yeah. you're right about the parallels, Jeff, that like, yes. it yes. will be an un- uncontrollable force so that we, uh, we, we can scan, scan and, and, predict and what same, will happen. In the same way that the researchers and scientists are defending it as the, this, this lust for uh, progress and discovery and innovation, like I think... That's kind of Oppenheimer's position, you know, as, as Patrick has repeatedly said, it's this, this desire to just sort of have this pure science. And I think there's a lot of that on the cutting edge of AI right now without regard to the, to the fallout. Yeah. And I use that or, word. I mean, I, I think actually what Devinder said, like, we can't have China be ahead of us. In, right. You know, and like it's that, a huge motivating and it's factor. Like, and that right justifies yeah. whatever we need to do to, you know. Yeah. So uh, anyway. This has been a great conversation. Patrick Willems, I want to give you the last word. Any other thoughts on Oppenheimer that uh, we haven't discussed? Oh, my God. I'm trying to think. Are there 
this movie's three hours long. There's so much in there. I mean, I mean, we haven't even we we didn't even mention the scene where he gets pissed at his professor in college and uh, and and poisons his apple. Uh, I think that apparently happened in real life. Did, yeah, did really yeah, happen. yeah, happened yeah. in real life. Yeah, there is. Look, it, it is a, a dense movie. There is so much there, and um, uh, no, I, I I feel like I feel like we've covered the most important stuff. I think. What about the is, score? I I, I mean. It, Ludwig Göransson just in sicko mode. Yeah, it's, he mostly used his team from Tenet, right? The same mm-hmm. cinematographer, same composer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. Hoyte van Hoytem has been shooting everything from it since 2014. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, uh, uh, Jennifer Lame, same editor, uh, same composer. I think this is just the new team going forward. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, you know. But, the score is so, awesome. It's uh, it's very different than than the the score for Tenet. A lot of uh, a lot of a lot of use of strings, just being like putting you on edge to be yeah. like make you feel like everything's like about to 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 become destabilized. Um, yeah, it's it's a great technically. It's really great work all around. You know, yeah. no one has any argument with that. I so. mean, my my yeah. final thing is just that. Um, look, I, I actually I feel like in when James Cameron was like going really hard for 3d the first time around in like 2009. And uh, I remember him saying like, look, this should not just be for, for big spectacle blockbusters. He's like, I want like courtroom dramas and romantic comedies in 3d. And I feel like, look, it is not 3d. I think this is better than 3d, but I, but I feel like, you know, Christopher Nolan's use of IMAX is like, he's actually kind of pursuing that. He's being like, look, this doesn't just have to be for, you know, to, to like, like big action movies with like trucks flipping over. It's like, you can do a drama and th- that will benefit from do- shooting it this way. And so if I know not many people do, but if you have the opportunity to 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 look at close-ups of Killian Murphy's eyes on like a four-story high screen, do it because y- you've never seen anything quite like it before. Indeed, indeed. Well, at the end of the day, it is as usual extremely impressive that Christopher Nolan made a movie. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Filmcast. You can find more episodes at thefilmcast.com. Email us. Let us know what you thought of. Oppenheimer at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Find us on TikTok at the filmcast. Find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at the filmcast pod. Uh, our theme song comes from Tim McEwen from The Midnight. Our spoiler bumper and weekly plugs music comes from Noah Ross. This episode was edited by me, David Chen, with video assistance provided by Kurt Mega and John Barry. Next week, Barbie. Yay. I'm really looking forward to this one. Lots to discuss. Lots to discuss. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we we have just gotten one of the most interesting Julys in terms of movies for a really long time. And I'm really grateful for it, guys. Really grateful that we got all these movies this month. Uh, really grateful for all of our patrons to support us. Really grateful to be here discussing it with you guys. We'll see you next week for more Filmcast. Bye. Bye.